three, two, one. Oh my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports, episode 366. Welcome in. Uh, big show today, talking about the NBA Finals, some baseball stuff. I got a couple baseball topics. It's going to be really cool to talk about that today. Um, I got, we'll do an interview with my buddy Marcel Frazier at the end. Really cool Ask Zach questions. I want to say real quick, though, I went to my old job today. I went through, uh, I'm shipping my car off. And I uh, went and got a car wash and then got the um, got a chip in the windshield fix. And I, I went to the car wash and I used to work there. And I'm going through the car wash. I, I shook hands with my old boss and the guys I used to work with. And they're the same. Like they, they all work at the same place and it's the same. It, nothing's changed. And it's been years now. And it's crazy to me. I'm like, man, I've come a long way. I'm engaged. I've got an awesome career. I like I, I just I was driving a different car. It's like, man, it's I, I it's a different they didn't recognize me. I didn't have a beard back then. And I just can't say thank you enough, man. I, I love my life. I love my job. I work incredibly hard. I know that – I hope it really does show. I mean I work my tail off behind the scenes making as much content as I possibly can. Uh, and I just – I want to you know, give a big thank you to you guys, man. I really, really appreciate all the people who watch and listen to the podcast. You guys have changed my life forever in so many ways, and I just cannot say thank you enough. Uh, let's jump in. I want to start today with the NFL. I've got a really, really fun topic to start with. There are seven NFL quarterbacks I find noteworthy who are now on new teams in the NFL. These are guys who are on one team and are making a move to a new team. No rookie quarterbacks here. That's a different day for a different topic. No rookie quarterbacks. No Trevor Lawrence. No Justin Fields. Um, But I ranked these guys, new quarterbacks uh, on new teams, one through seven, based on who I am confident will be most successful this fall. So number seven, uh, who I will start with, is at the bottom. And my number one guy at the end is the person who I am most confident in. The guy I'm like, ah, yeah, this guy, pound the table, I believe in him. I do have to give an honorable mention, though, real quick. Uh, Andy Dalton did go to Chicago. He's the Bears' new quarterback. Uh, I left him off the list. He's not in my top seven. Uh, to me, the thing is, he's just not the story in Chicago. Like, I, I didn't include Mitchell Trubisky either because Mitchell Trubisky is the backup quarterback in Buffalo. Like, there, there's other quarterbacks who moved around. I think the, the number eight most notable guy probably is Andy Dalton. He's going to play a little bit, we think. But Andy's just a placeholder for Justin Fields. Like, the story in Chicago is the rookie quarterback, Justin Fields. Uh, but if that changes, let's say Andy Dalton has an amazing year and is incredible. Of course, I'll make a new topic. I'll update. I'm like, oh, wow, Andy Dalton, I had such low expectations. I didn't even put him on that list I made. And so I just want to acknowledge, hey, Andy Dalton is another guy who's going to play in the NFL, start a couple games, uh, and he he's missing from this list in case you're wondering. But let's start off at the bottom of the ranking. Number seven, Tyrod Taylor. Tyrod Taylor went to the Houston Texans this offseason. Houston is terrible. They will be an awful team. Uh, and he's right on the edge of a guy like he's the 28th or 30th best quarterback in the NFL. You know, he's, he's right. He's not awful. I, I would put him ahead of a guy like Trubisky, who's now no longer a starting quarterback. And, you know, he actually once led the Buffalo Bills to the playoffs. I mean, Tyrod Taylor's had a very weird career. And in just a couple of years back-to-back, he's lost his job to 
Josh Allen in Buffalo, then Baker Mayfield in Cleveland, and then last year he lost his job to Justin Herbert in L.A. And like, man, this guy, it's very weird. Now, for the first time in his career, Tyrod Taylor is finally the guy doing the replacing. Rather than getting replaced, oh, Tyrod is now the guy in Houston. Because the Texans' most recent quarterback, Deshaun Watson, played there for a couple years, is in the middle of a messy, massive legal battle. Uh, And I've seen some people say that if Deshaun Watson does ever play again, he may never play again in the NFL, but if Deshaun Watson does ever play again in the NFL, he may not play again until 2023. It could be a couple years of legal stuff and all kinds of things. I'm just going to wait and see what happens. I'm kind of staying away from that. But it is very safe to say Deshaun Watson is not going to play quarterback for the Houston Texans this fall. And Tyrod Taylor looks like will be the week one starter in Houston. Uh, Now, they did draft the Stanford quarterback Davis Mills in the third round, the first pick in the third round. Uh, He could play later in the year. But I expect Tyrod Taylor to start a lot of games in Houston. He's their guy moving forward until we get further notice. And uh, unfortunately, Houston's going to lose a ton of games. I mean, Tyrod Taylor can do his very best. Uh, they're just an awful, awful franchise, awful football team. Um, they went 4-12 and last year. That was with Deshaun Watson playing incredibly well, by the way. Deshaun Watson, their quarterback last year, had like an MVP caliber year, and it was so bad around him he couldn't overcome that. Now they're taking a step backward to Tyrod Taylor, a guy who's not as good at quarterback. Uh, I, I have even lower expectations, but... Still, I think it's. I feel bad for Tyrod Taylor because it's like a missed opportunity. He's a guy who's a, a starting quality quarterback. Who I thought the one time in Buffalo he had something going. They they didn't want him and they replaced him with Josh Allen. Who Josh Allen has justified that move, but it's like man, I it's still like ah oh, dang man. Tyrod Taylor really got the short end of the stick. He's never been in this great moment with a good team around him, and I I really would be curious to see what happened with Tyrod Taylor if he ever did get a moment like that. He'd never be amazing, but he certainly is. Not the absolute worst quarterback in the NFL. So, Tyrod Taylor. Number six is Lions quarterback Jared Goff. He got traded to Detroit. I do not love Jared Goff. In L.A., I always believed that his head coach, Sean McVay, did the heavy lifting. I mean, Jared Goff did some good stuff. He certainly is capable. He's got a great arm. Uh, But he had Sean McVay in his ears Every single play, Sean McVay, you can talk over the headset to your quarterback until uh, a little bit left in the the play clock. And so regularly the Rams were snapping the ball early in the play clock before before Sean McVay got cut off from talking to Jared Goff. Meaning, man, there are a lot of moments where Sean McVay is telling Jared Goff where to look, what to do, babysitting, right? And he's losing that. And I, I would say that the success Jared Goff had was more to do with coaching and more to do with Sean McVay than it was to do with Jared Goff. I mean, there's a reason the Rams got rid of him and moved on. Matthew Stafford, who I think is much better, couldn't win in Detroit. I don't know why you would go, oh, the better quarterback couldn't do it in Detroit. Let's be more confident in Jared Goff. It's hard to find a lot of confidence for the Lions with Jared Goff. And you do realize the Rams had to package Jared with two first-round picks to offload him, to get rid of him. And to get rid of that big contract he had. So while I admit I am I'm very, very skeptical of Jared Goff. I said good coaching did help Jared Goff in the past. And the Lions do have some good coaching. Their offensive coordinator, Anthony Lynn, 
is a guy who failed as a head coach in L.A., um, but he really, really helped Justin Herbert last year. Uh, Justin Herbert got way, way better in his transition from college football to professional football. And I give a lot of credit to that to Anthony Lynn, the guy coaching him up. I mean, I think Anthony Lynn deserves a ton of credit for Justin Herbert winning the Rookie of the Year last year. He's the unsung hero that nobody talks about, Uh, the guy that helped Justin improve. Now, also, the Lions have a quarterback coach, Mark Brunell, who is a former NFL quarterback, a guy who played 17 years from 1994 to 2011. Mark Brunell loves football. He's the best quarterback in the Jacksonville Jaguars franchise history. We'll see if Trevor Lawrence can break that. That'd be kind of interesting, kind of cool to see. But having Mark Brunell there is also a cool person to have working with Jared Goff, a guy who has done the job before. He's been in the room, loves football very clearly. He, he would. There's no way after 17 years in the NFL playing quarterback, he needs to coach. I, I Maybe he's awful financially, but I, I think he's a guy who loves football. Now, the Lions are rebuilding. I wish they had some more offensive weapons. Uh, they did draft tackle Panay Sewell uh, to protect Jared Goff. They also have TJ Hawkinson, a guy who was a Pro Bowl tight end last year. Like, there's not nothing around Jared Goff. And I, I don't have a lot of confidence in him. I'm not, like, going to pound the table and say, Jared Goff is going to be great next year. But it's certainly not hopeless either. Like, there's a, there's a shot here that with good coaching and some time, this could work. I'm not real confident. There's a reason he's number six on my list. But there's a shot Jared Goff does really, really well. In Detroit. Number five, Teddy Bridgewater. He got traded from Carolina to the Denver Broncos. Uh, He's the new Broncos quarterback. And there is a guy behind Teddy Bridgewater, Drew Locke, a guy who has played and started a number of games for the Denver Broncos. But Denver traded for Teddy Bridgewater because they are desperate for good quarterback play. Frankly, they don't seem to care where it comes from. Whether it's Drew Locke or Teddy Bridgewater, they'll take it from anybody. But the Broncos want a good quarterback. They've got a great roster. They're ready to win. And remember, once upon a time, myself and many other people believed that Teddy Bridgewater was going to be the Minnesota Vikings and and was, in fact, the Minnesota Vikings franchise quarterback. Remember, things used to were going very, very well a couple years ago Uh, in 2014. Teddy Bridgewater was a first-round pick. And then the next year in 2015, they went 11-5. and five. Like, things were rolling. Teddy was pr- playing well. He was the man. And then he hurt his knee. Had this horrific, awful knee injury. Teddy did not play at all in 2016. Played in one game in 2017. And then he bounced around the league for a while. He went to the New York Jets, sat behind Sam Darnold. Then New Orleans behind Drew Brees. Got a shot to be a starter in Carolina. Now, a lot of success in the NFL depends on the situation around you. Do you have a good coach? Do you have good teammates? Do you have help? Quarterbacks need help. Every single quarterback in the NFL needs some help to win. Remember, Tom Brady had people saying that he was washed up in 2019. (laughs) The cliff, he's awful. Well, 2020 last year, Tom Brady went to Tampa Bay wins a Super Bowl. First year. So, very clearly, quarterbacks need help. That's undebatable. By the way, remember when Matt Schaub once led the league 
in passing yards. Matt Schaub in 2009 had nearly 5,000 yards passing. So unexpected things can happen. Kurt Warner led the Cardinals to a Super Bowl late in his career. They lost the Super Bowl, but it was an incredible run. It was like, wow, hey, look, a team that's got a great roster, got the right quarterback, made a big run. And so sometimes it all does come together where a guy lands in the right spot with a lot of help around him and does the unexpected. Denver is loaded. The Denver Broncos have a ton of talent everywhere. Offense, defense, skill players. It's ridiculous. And so this is the best opportunity Teddy Bridgewater is ever going to get for him to show, hey, here's what could have been. Minnesota Vikings fans might watch this year and go, Oh, what could, like heartbroken for what could have been. Maybe not. I don't know. I can't, I can't get a read on it. Remember, Teddy's had a lot of opportunities. But was the Jets really a great opportunity? He, he was never the guy in New Orleans. He wanted a shot to be the starting quarterback. I think if Drew Brees had retired before last year, Teddy might have stayed in New Orleans. But he's like, no, I want to be a starting quarterback. So he left. Got a big deal in Carolina. Carolina is decent. Uh, but he's certainly going to have a better roster in Denver. And I am telling you, if there's ever going to be a shot for Teddy Bridgewater to do what we thought he was going to do back in 2015 when he went 11-5 and and was doing so well with the Minnesota Vikings, this is the shot for Teddy Bridgewater to have kind of a redemption story, a cool arc to showing people what could have been. There's a shot he pops off. I don't know if he's going to succeed, uh, but it's very possible Teddy Bridgewater makes me regret not ranking him higher on this list. My number four quarterback is Sam Darnold. And I'll be honest, I debated whether or not to put Sam Darnold ahead of Teddy Bridgewater. The Denver Broncos have a great roster. Like, I went back and forth on this. Ultimately, I realized, well, Sam Darnold has literally replaced Teddy Bridgewater twice, two different times. Remember, Teddy Bridgewater was Sam Darnold's backup in New York on the Jets. And then this year, Carolina traded Teddy away and literally replaced Teddy with Sam Darnold. So multiple times, two NFL franchises have chosen Sam Darnold over Teddy. To me, I go, okay, I trust that. I believe that. Not to mention, remember, Teddy Bridgewater is older. He's had more opportunities on more teams to show us he's a great quarterback. Now, Sam Darnold who is 24 years old, turned 24 in June. Like, he's, he's literally younger than Joe Burrow, despite the fact that he's played in the NFL for two more years than Joe Burrow. Sam Darnold has had a brutal NFL career to this point. He's had no help, a bad roster around him, a bad coach helping him, and it is really, really hard to be good when you're surrounded by so much bad. Like it, it is just especially if you're a young quarterback, just being sucked down into the abyss. I would argue that Sam Darnold has never, ever been given a real shot to do well in the NFL until now. The Carolina Panthers traded for him. Again, 24 years old. uh, And in Carolina, he's finally going to get some support and more importantly, some stability. Some people who are competent running the team. The Carolina Panthers do not have the best roster in the NFL. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he's going to get a good owner, David Tepper, a good coach, Matt Rule, a guy who turned around Temple, turned around Baylor. Now he's working on turning around the Carolina Panthers. They're getting an awesome offensive coordinator. Sorry, they have a great offensive coordinator, Joe Brady. Remember Joe Brady a couple years ago, 
is the coach who helped Joe Burrow go from a nobody was probably like going to be was projected to be like a seventh round pick. And with the help of Joe Brady at LSU in college, Joe Burrow went from nobody to a superstar. Heisman Trophy winner, number one overall pick, the quarterback we see today. Now, again, a lot of that is because Joe Burrow worked his butt off, but it certainly helps when you got a good coach. So now Sam Darnold has that coach. Oh, sweet. Great ownership, great coach, great offensive coordinator helping him. The Panthers have some solid talent. They have Christian McCaffrey running back. Guy who gets the ball out of the backfield really, really well. Chuba Hubbard, they drafted this year. Uh, DJ Moore is an underrated receiver. They have Dan Arnold, a sneaky good receiving tight end. Go watch Dan Arnold highlights. Didn't have a lot of catches, but he had a couple catches in Arizona recently. We were like, oh my gosh, this guy's an underutilized talent. I'm excited to watch him in Carolina. Now, I am all in. I truly believe the Panthers got their franchise quarterback and they did it for a bargain. They got a great deal. They traded a second round pick for Sam Darnold, a couple late round picks in next year's NFL draft. And the impact of getting a new team, a chance to reset your career, to play under good leadership, you're going to see a different Sam Darnold in 2021 this fall. And I, I am so excited. I fully believe I cannot wait to watch Sam Darnold play this year in Carolina. My number three quarterback who's moved to a new team is Ryan Fitzpatrick. He signed to be the quarterback in Washington. And it's pretty amazing what perception can do. Uh, perception, is it age? Remember, in 2018, Ryan Fitzpatrick had an incredible run where he, he put up massive numbers, was doing crazy good stuff in Tampa Bay. That, that's where he got the nickname Fitz Magic. when you're like, oh my gosh. And the Buccaneers went back and forth between Ryan Fitzpatrick, Jameis Winston. In the end, they said, well, hey, Ryan, sorry, you're old, dude. We're going to stick with Jameis Winston for another year, and we're going to go with the younger guy who we, we drafted, number one overall pick. We're going to stick with the younger, more appealing option than the older aging quarterback. Despite the fact you did some good stuff, we're going to move on. So that was 2018. In 2019, two years ago, he played really well for the Miami Dolphins, but he's old. He's 38 years old. If he'd done the good stuff he did in 2018 and 2019 at 24 years old, he'd be viewed as a franchise quarterback. People would be building their team around Ryan Fitzpatrick. The problem is, this is a guy who was a late bloomer, man. He, he picked very, very late in his career. And so Miami drafted Tua. They said, we're going to draft Tua Tungvaloa, number five overall, build around this guy. Because, sorry, buddy, you're old. We got we to gotta get our quarterback of the future. And Miami kept trying to make Tua the guy. Remember at the, right after the bye week, they made Tua their starting quarterback. The problem was though, late in games, in key moments, they would take Tua out of the game. They'd go back to Ryan Fitzpatrick. They kept putting in Ryan Fitzpatrick that they trusted who pretty clearly they thought gave them the best opportunity to win games in close, tight moments. And so I, I have no doubt Ryan Fitzpatrick would never say this. He's too gracious and I think, frankly, doesn't want to cause trouble. He would never say this, but I would imagine he was at least, at minimum, a little bit annoyed with the way that Miami just would not commit to him and we're back and forth and Tua. And he gets it. Like, they drafted Tua. They're going to go with him. But you're telling me he didn't want to be the starting quarterback? And sometimes all a quarterback needs is for a team to commit to them. 
That is why this marriage between Ryan Fitzpatrick and Washington is so perfect. This Washington football team, they made the playoffs last year, even though they never really had a true starting quarterback. Last year, Washington had four different starting quarterbacks play for them. They had Dwayne Haskins, Kyle Allen, Alex Smith. Then in the playoffs, they started a guy, Taylor Henneke, who hadn't played quarterback for them all year as the starting quarterback. And Taylor Henneke, by the way, did shockingly well against Tampa. But to have four different starting quarterbacks in a playoff run is absurd. That doesn't happen. (laughs) You don't have a team that goes to the playoffs without a starting quarterback. So all Washington needed was a quarterback to commit to, and all Ryan Fitzpatrick needed was a team that would commit to him. And when you think about it, Washington should be the favorite to win the NFC East this year. They won it last year, even though they didn't even really have a true starting quarterback. Like, who's better than Washington as far as just the base roster? Dallas? New York? Philly? No, Washington was a playoff team last year. They were so good, they did it without a quarterback. Now they have a quarterback. Who? I mean, Ryan Fitzpatrick could be amazing next year. But even if he's not, if he's stable and solid, that's what Washington needs. Uh, The Washington football team doesn't care if Ryan Fitzpatrick is their franchise quarterback of the future. They want a guy to help them win playoff games and make a run. And uh, Fitzpatrick is the guy. Fitzmagic, whatever you want to call him. I think Ryan Fitzpatrick is going to bring their best out of this young Washington roster. He's a good leader. He's a veteran. I am really, really excited to watch him. And I'm very confident it's going to go well in Washington. Number two. Carson Wentz. Carson Wentz got traded from Philly to the Colts. Uh, remember, he was bad last year in Philly. It was not good. It was inaccurate. Made a lot of bad decisions. The team around him broke down. But Carson did the thing he just can't do. He allowed the problems around him to bring him down. He started playing hero ball, trying to be Superman, making throws that were forced and not there. And making bad decisions, holding out of the ball too long, playing some really bad football. He got benched. He lost his job. And I, I mean, I, I can't defend it. He deserved it. But now Carson Wentz is on a new team. And I, I've covered this a ton. I feel I keep retreading like, hey, the Colts, Carson Wentz. But the Colts are a really, really good team that made the playoffs last year. And I, I think they upgraded at quarterback. They just need it. I mean, Philip Rivers retired. Was he forced into retirement or not? I don't know. Feels like the Colts went and got their guy, but they needed a quarterback. Carson's their guy. And remember, in 2017, Carson Wentz had an amazing year. Now, he got hurt in week 14 with three games left in the regular season. And when Carson Wentz got hurt in 2017, at the time, he was the top candidate to win the NFL League MVP. He was doing that well. Nobody else on my list of the top seven quarterbacks that have changed teams this offseason, none of those guys have ever even come close to winning an MVP. Carson Wentz is that talented, that ridiculously good. He's done that much stuff in the NFL. And in 2017, the year that Carson Wentz had that incredible year, Frank Reich was his offensive coordinator. Well, now, the, the amazing has happened. In 2021, this fall, they've been reunited. Frank Reich is the head coach of the Indianapolis Colts. Carson is his quarterback. He went out and got Carson. 
That's how it feels to me. Like, go get me my guy, he said to his general manager, Chris Ballard. And I I think the Colts have potential to win a Super Bowl. I mean, it it may not be this year. It could be next year. But they got a great coach. They've got a quarterback I'm really confident in. They got a great defense, an offensive line. They run the ball really well. T.Y. Hilton's at receiver. Like, I have high, high expectations from Carson Wentz and the Colts this fall in 2021. Okay, let me drink some water. We'll build up to number one. So number one, the quarterback who is going to a new team that I am most confident in is Matthew Stafford. This is cool stuff right now. Really, really cool scenarios are going on. You have Carson Wentz reuniting with his old coach. That's like something you can't really even expect to ever happen. That's very, very cool. And then you have Matthew Stafford being rescued from Detroit. Now Matthew Stafford can have a cool final chapter in his career. I I thought he was going to just be buried in Detroit forever. It was very, very unfortunate. And I have more confidence in Matthew Stafford than Carson Wentz because Carson Wentz is coming off a bad year, making bad decisions. He allowed the team to pull him down. Matthew Stafford never did that. Matthew Stafford never allowed the Detroit Lions to pull him down. He was a a bright, shining star in a dark abyss. I would say that he was a a bright, shining star in a black hole, but a black hole is a dying star, so that's a whole convoluted thing I don't need to go into. But, man, he was the only bright spot in a really, really bad franchise for years. Remember, Matthew Stafford was a number one overall pick in 2009. And the year before the Lions drafted him, in 2008, they went 0-16. They were awful. And they've been awful forever. They've had three different head coaches. They rebuilt the three different times around Matthew Stafford. The one time, by the way, the Lions had a pretty good thing going. Jim Caldwell they went to the playoffs two times in three years. Like, hey, things are looking up. Detroit got greedy and, and fired the guy. I, I still, to this day, will never understand why the Lions fired Jim Caldwell. I'll never get it. Uh, it's like they, they didn't appreciate the good thing they had going. They got, I don't know what it is. It's just, it's idiocy. And it cannot be quantified how hard it is to overcome the stink of a bad franchise, working for a bad boss, bad ownership with bad decision-making. Matthew Stafford did everything he could, but now after 12 years, he doesn't have to go through that abuse anymore. He's been rescued. He's 33 years old. Remember Tom Brady's still playing at 43. Big Ben is 39 still playing. Drew Brees just retired at 42. Like, man, Matthew Stafford doesn't have to play as nearly as long as Tom Brady, but he could play still for like five, six, seven, maybe eight more years. So it's cool for him to have another chapter of his career, a redemption opportunity to say, hey, that was awful, but let me show you what I can really do when I get some help. So now he's getting paired, Matthew Stafford is, with the Rams head coach, Sean McVay. Oh, boy. He, I, I love it so much. Matthew Stafford is much better than the Rams' former quarterback, Jared Goff. And remember, Sean McVay went to a Super Bowl with Jared Goff. Like, he made that work so well, they got to a Super Bowl. Now, so, remember, Sean McVay was in the headset of Jared Goff all the time, kind of babysitting, helping him. Hey, hey, look at the safety coming down. They snapped the ball early in the playcock. Always, always helping the young quarterback. Now, Sean McVay has a veteran quarterback who he can trust, who he doesn't need to babysit. 
I'm sure for him, he's like, hallelujah. He's so glad to be paired with Matthew Stafford. And where Jared Goff held them back, Matthew Stafford can carry them forward. They upgraded at quarterback. They got a guy who's incredibly talented, who finally, for the first time ever, doesn't have to carry a horrible, horrible franchise. The Rams are another team, one of these teams that making this move puts them in the conversation for a Super Bowl. The Colts. Washington is interesting. I think they're a playoff team. The Rams, they upgraded. Remember, I mean, I have, I have high hopes. I'm very, very confident in Matthew Stafford in a Rams jersey. But you realize the Rams went 10-6 and six last year. They were a playoff team. They had the best defense in football. They've got a great head coach. And now they've upgraded at quarterback. The Rams are scary. I am very, very excited to watch Matthew Stafford this fall play in L.A. All right, guys, I'm going to take a short break. When I return, uh, we'll talk about the NBA Finals. Uh, Nikhil Harry wants a trade. That's interesting. Uh, some baseball stuff. I got a couple baseball stories. That'll be really, really fun. I, baseball, man, is really I, – I played MLB the show, and I've been really into baseball recently. Uh, we'll do Ask Zach down the road. And at the very end, uh, I got a fun interview with my buddy Marcel Frazier. He was coaching uh, in the European League of Football for the Barcelona Dragons. My name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. All right, we are back. Hope we're doing very, very well. I want to say two things before I jump into the NBA Finals. Number one, someone a while back asked me uh, my like advice for staying up all night working and like what I do and how I pull off all-nighters. Uh, honestly, I guess there's a thing I've been doing recently, uh, for better or worse. I've been really challenging myself recently, watching a ton of film, like really pushing myself to work a lot as much as I can, but also trying to balance quality. And this is, it's it's not a sponsor, nothing like this, but I, you know, what's like really good is the Coca-Cola coffee vanilla flavor. That stuff, like, I I think I need sugar. Like the, the black tea is just, I kind of. It stopped being as effective, but man, the Coca-Cola coffee, two of those, oh baby, you got like six, seven more hours the night. I mean, you can just pound and just keep going and going and going. So uh, that's thought number one. Thought number two, the Dustin Poirier-Conor McGregor fight was, gosh, it's 5.33 a.m. So it was last night. I didn't watch the fight. It's not my thing. I don't, I'm not a big combat sports guy. Uh, to each their own. People love it. Good for you. I'm glad you have that. Um, but I, I, I want to say I, I really, really was impressed with Dustin Poirier and the way he conducted himself after the fight. So in case you don't know, Conor McGregor broke his ankle uh, in the first round right at the end. It was a very weird fight because you didn't really get a good outcome. It was just a very, like, the little I know, it's like that. that's a weird fight. But Dustin Poirier, I mean, Conor McGregor is crazy and loud and you know how if you follow sports at all you know how he is and who he is and what he does and connor is sitting there with a broken ankle doing his thing running his mouth being his loud mouth crazy self and dustin poirier was so classy i i don't know anything about dustin poirier at all i've never i've heard his name but i've never watched him fight i don't know the guy at all like nothing not no familiarity with him at all but the answers he gave both in the ring 
in the press conferences afterward. Basically, like he's above it all. I mean, he really doesn't care about the the sideshow. I mean, Conor McGregor's really famous because of not only his style and his fighting ability, but because he plays to the crowd. He like trumps it up and it's very like, you know, rah-rah and he talks a lot of smack. And Dustin Poirier is like, nah, not gonna really do that. Like, very straightforward, matter of fact. I'm gonna fight him again. Uh, I hope he gets home to his family safe. Like, you can talk all this trash, but, you know, talking about murdering me in the ring and sending me home in a coffin, the guy crosses a line and he's like, you know, I'm, I'm really not into this side of it. I, I'm here to fight. I don't really care about doing interviews. Like, I love the way Dustin Poirier communicates. I, I really just, I encourage you. Well, you may not like fighting. I certainly am not a, a fighting fan at all. I, I'm not, I, I've never watched like two UFC fights in my life. I watched Cowboy and Conor McGregor. That's like pretty much it. Uh, but I, whether you like fighting or not, I recommend you go look up some of the interview answers that Dustin Poirier gave after that fight. I walked away very impressed. Just what a stand-up guy. That's the the way he came across was classy and respectful, both to the sport and to Conor McGregor and to himself. I, I just was like, man, that's a dude who is like, that's a man. I mean, I, I wish I had a better way to put it, but like rather than being the tough guy talking smack and posturing, he's just like very, very comfortable laid boundaries for himself, was respectful to Connor. I just was blown away. I'm like, wow, this is a, that's a real man right there who, who just handled that incredibly, incredibly well. Okay, let's shift gears to the NBA Finals. My lighting has been all over the place. It's been like, I think it's settling down now. I think, I think I'm on auto exposure and it's just been off and on, you know, this whole segment. Um, let's jump into the NBA. After the first two games of the NBA Finals, the Phoenix Suns lead the series two games to zero. In game one, they beat the Bucks 118 to 105, and in game two, the Suns scored 118 points again. Uh, this time in game one, in game two, they won 118 to 108. Very similar scores, similar games in some respects. Uh, game one and game two. Game three of the NBA Finals is going to be really, really, really important. Because at this point, after watching game one and two, it's really hard to imagine Milwaukee beating Phoenix. I mean, the Suns look so good and so dominant. And it's not entirely hopeless. There is a, I'm going to lay out a path of what Milwaukee can do to beat Phoenix or at least get competitive with Phoenix. But we're just at a point where the NBA Finals are in danger of becoming a blowout. I mean, they really have to make some changes in Milwaukee and, and I guess that's the big question is, will Milwaukee do what it takes to make this series competitive? Are they going to make the adjustments it's going to require? Uh, you know, Milwaukee made a big adjustment in game two. I, I, there was one thing they did that was really impressive already. Uh, they did a better job defending the Suns' pick and roll, uh, fighting through screens, meeting the ball handler uh, at the free throw line, challenging shots, either you know forcing guys like Chris Paul, Devin Booker to pull up and make contested shots. They often did, but that's, hey, that's better. Uh, or forcing, you know, kickout passes, which unfortunately for Milwaukee, Phoenix just knocked down a bunch of threes in game two. They, they were 20 for 40 shooting threes. Uh, I mean, to hit 20 three-pointers, eight of them in the first quarter, um, that's, it just, I mean, hey, the Suns had a great night shooting. Now, the biggest thing Milwaukee needs to do, though, is they need to have Drew Holiday 
and Chris Middleton step up. Drew Holiday really struggled in game one and game two shooting, uh, missing open shots, even missing layups, like stuff that's just not good offensive basketball. I mean, the guy only had 10 points in game one. And then Chris Middleton struggled in game two a lot. He was five for 16 shooting with only 11 points. And Giannis needs help, man. The two-time MVP, Giannis, dude put up 42 points in game two. And I, I got to say, I was worried about his ankle, or not his ankle, his knee, sorry, the hyperextendity. I was worried about his knee going into the series. You know, it's Conor McGregor broke his ankle. That's on my mind, too. Um, so Giannis hyperextended his knee in the Eastern Conference Finals. I'm like, oh, no, this is going to be a, a big storyline. You know, what makes Giannis so great is his athletic ability. He can do anything he wants inside and what he's not very mobile and my worry very very quickly went away in game one when Giannis ran down uh, a Mikel Bridges layup and blocked it from behind you know LeBron style just like in the NBA finals uh, a couple years ago and it was just like man wow Giannis was moving really really well and I you know I limping occasionally but for the most part like okay Giannis is healthy enough like he can compete Uh, he's getting so many buckets inside but again, like Giannis is nowhere near the problem for Milwaukee. He needs help. He needs Drew Holiday to step up. He needs Chris Middleton to step up. Uh, Drew Holiday's given a good effort on defense, but offensively, like 10 points in game one, missing layups, missing bad, you know, open shots. You, you have to deliver. And right now, what Milwaukee's giving uh, from their two and three player right now, Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, it's not enough on offense. Now, uh, game one and game two were in Phoenix. The crowd was unbelievable. Uh, I, I wish I could have been there. Like, really cool atmosphere. Anytime Giannis is shooting free throws, I mean, they're doing the one, two, three counting, you know, up to you know the, the seconds it's taking Giannis to shoot the uh, free throw. And Giannis had an air ball or two. And I, the series is now going to take a shift from Phoenix to Milwaukee. Game three and four are, are in Milwaukee. And I would imagine that's going to give Milwaukee a boost, help uh, their team play a little better, give them a, a like lift them up a little bit to not play against a really hostile crowd on the road. Um, now, look, the narrative really has to be, though, can Milwaukee make this interesting? Can they make it a series at all? But, but I got to say, game one and game two confirmed my belief. Like, if you ask me, hey, Zach, who's going to win? It's, it's Phoenix. I mean, they're up two games to nothing for a reason. And I, I very much believe the Phoenix Suns are going to win the NBA Finals. Let's see if Chris Middleton steps up. Let's see if Drew Holiday does better on offense. Let's see if they can make a couple tweaks. But right now, like, the obvious favorite has to be Phoenix. They play so, so, so well together. I love watching the Phoenix Suns. It's fun basketball. Their ball movement, their help defense, the way they communicate. Uh, they had a play in game two where they, they had 10 passes in one play. Where, you know, leading up to a DeAndre Ayton and one for a three-point play, they passed the ball 10 times in one possession within a 24-second shot clock. And you're like, my goodness. And it was competitive. Like, you know, Milwaukee's doing their best. And it's I, effort's high, but it's I, – I just think the Suns, their, their chemistry, the way they play together is going to uh, be the deciding factor here. They, they're outclassing Milwaukee by far uh, from a chemistry standpoint. Uh, DeAndre Ayton was a big presence in game one. He had 22 points, 19 rebounds, uh, was not as big a presence in game two, but in game two, uh, Michael Bridges was that number three. You know, you always have Chris Paul and Devin Booker as the, the two best players in Phoenix, but then who's going to be the third guy on what given night? And Mikel Bridges was the third guy. 
in game two. He had 29 points in the second game of the series. And uh, look, I can't say enough how fun it is to watch this team. Phoenix is just a blast. It's such high-level basketball. You have Chris Paul at the point guard position, uh, 36 years old, does not look 36 years old. And it was pretty cool when, when Drew Holiday was guarding him, he, he changed his game. But there was a moment where Drew Holiday backed off and was guarding Devin Booker instead. And, and Chris Paul said, oh, I got a mismatch. It's, I don't have the best guy defending me. So he was just being way more aggressive, taking shots. Uh, like, okay, if you're not going to play Drew Holiday on me, I'm going to pull up every time. And the mid-range jumper for Chris Paul, CP3, it's unreal. His fadeaway is beautiful. Uh, he had 32 points in game one. Chris Paul did. And then you have Devin Booker who, look, when I watch Devin Booker, all I see is work ethic and preparation. It's it's so obvious the dude gets after it. The same way, and I kind of understand why Stephen A. Smith made that comment a while back saying, like, he's the next Kobe Bryant. Here's what I think really that means is when you watch Devin Booker, you see a guy who his ball handling, his jump shot, a guy who's mastered his skill set and is so good in a one-on-one isolation setting. And he, he clearly has just done so much work in the offseason preparing tirelessly. And when you watch Kobe, the preparation showed. You went, yeah, oh, oh this guy must shoot a bazillion shots in the offseason. This guy must be constantly working on his ball handling and all kinds of stuff. And you get the same feeling when you watch Devin Booker. This is a guy who's incredibly well-prepared, who just works like a dog to get ready every season in the offseason. And Devin Booker also has an edge that a guy like Chris Middleton just doesn't have. Chris Middleton is this really talented scorer in Milwaukee, but there, he just is, he's not on all the time. He's very streaky. Devin Booker, is so he can create any shot he wants, any time he wants. And he just does crazy stuff. He has layups where he goes, you know, over and under. And, you know, I forget what the word is called there. Like, a, just, you know, around the world layups. Like, like in the air, this double clutch. It's, it's beautiful. And, they, you know, another example of Devin Booker just being a stud. Like, having this edge of, this is my game. I'm going to do whatever I want. He had a really long three-pointer with Brooke Lopez, a seven-footer for Milwaukee, in his face. And just, like, nothing. He's... Nothing but net. It was beautiful. And you're like, oh my goodness. That's a guy who, Chris Middleton doesn't have that. That kind of edge. That kind of, just, you know, the ability. to. I've heard heard Charles Barkley talk about having the ability to step on someone's neck and be the finisher when you need to. Devin Booker has that. Like, he can put the nail in the coffin. And, you know, it's, it's so impressive to watch this guy. And his shot-making ability is unreal. I love watching Devin Booker. Now, you know, the Bucs are going to try. Um, it's it's really, really hard to see Milwaukee beating Phoenix, though. In Game 2, Giannis had 20 points in the third quarter. That's the most points ever for a player in a single quarter in NBA Finals history. And it didn't even make a dent. I mean, Phoenix was, in Game 1, they led by 20 points late in the third quarter right near the end. And frankly, Milwaukee is still too undisciplined. Milwaukee makes random passes, they bad shots, lazy moves. It's almost like sometimes Milwaukee doesn't realize, "Hey, you're playing in the NBA Finals. You can't like you can't screw around here. It's just a it's a lackadaisical nature that makes you it's very bizarre. 
And I almost wonder if, does Milwaukee need a better coach? Like, what's happening here? Is Mike Budenholzer not saying, hey, we got to correct these mistakes. We can't be making that pass. We can't be just blatantly missing easy layups. We can't be um, throwing the ball away here. We can't be lazy or not going after the ball, not closing out. Like, it's little things that Milwaukee is so bad at. Like, they're so bad at the fine detail that's got to be coaching, right? Like, is he not pointing these things out? Are they not listening to him? Uh, I, I just, Milwaukee makes so many bad plays that it just, you have to wonder at what point do you blame coaching for not cleaning up those little things? I don't know, man. I, I think Phoenix is going to win the title. Uh, I would be shocked if they didn't. But it is interesting, like, can Milwaukee make it interesting? Uh, it is also worth noting uh, Dario Saric, the Suns forward towards ACL in game one. Interesting. It's sad, really. Uh, I, it's brutal for him. I feel so bad. Like season over game one of the NBA finals, just you're done for the year. Uh, awful for him. I just feel so bad for Dario Saric. But again, the question remains, what's going to happen? Game three is must win for Milwaukee. They have to deliver. You, you cannot allow, you go down three games to nothing. It's over. Like it, it is over. This is a must win game for Milwaukee. Uh, and we'll see, like, can Milwaukee make things interesting in the NBA Finals, or is it going to be a sweep or a gentleman's sweep? Game three is massively important. Uh, it's tonight in the NBA Finals. All right, guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. When I return, we'll talk about baseball. Uh, then we'll talk about Nikhil Harry. He asked for a trade in New England. Then uh, later we'll do Formula One, ask Zach, and then at the end of the show, uh, we'll do an interview with my buddy, Marcel Frazier. He is a former NFL player. Uh, I went to high school with him. I love this guy. He's one of my favorite humans in the world. Um, I, I just, I love the guy, man. He's coaching right now in professional football. So we'll do a Marcel Frazier interview at the end of the show. I recorded it a couple of days ago. I'm wearing a different shirt. Like you'll, you'll be like, oh, that's a different shirt. Like, clearly it happened on a different day. But nonetheless, it's a really, really fun, uh, really interesting interview hearing his exploits and his stories uh, coaching professional football. My name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. All right, we are back. Hope you're doing very, very well. Uh, I got to be honest, man. I have been getting really, really into baseball recently. Like, I went to my buddy's house. We played MLB The Show, the video game. And it made me really want to watch baseball. I've been craving baseball ever since that. And I've been following what's going been going on and... I got a couple little baseball topics I want to share. Um, I think, number one, if you follow baseball at all, then you see Shohei Otani literally everywhere. And you see what he's been doing. He's been on a tear through the MLB recently. It's pretty unbelievable. Uh, at the time of recording, uh, he's playing today. I think he struck out against the Mariners, so... Uh, we'll see if he hits home run later in the game. At the time of recording right now, though, he's hit 33 home runs this year. He leads Major League Baseball with the most home runs all year. That's unbelievable in of itself. I mean, it's crazy. Here's a list. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a crazy long list of days where these are the days recently where he's hit home runs. June 15th, June 16th, June 18th, he had two home runs. June 19th, 20th, 25th, 27th, 28th. On June 29th, he had two home runs. On July 2nd, he had two more home runs. July 4th, he had a home run. July 7th, he had a home run. July 9th, he had a home run. It's ridiculous. Like, dude, this guy is unbelievable. We're two games from the All-Star break. 
and he's hitting a home run almost every night recently. You're like, well, okay then. So that's already by itself crazy. Like he's played in 82 games this year, hit 33 home runs. That's like 40% of his games. He's hitting a home run. But here's what's crazy about Shohei Otani, like the most absurd thing I'm going to say. Not only does he lead Major League Baseball in hitting home runs, but he's also pitched in 67 innings. He's struck out 87 batters. He's a starting pitcher. Oh, yeah. And he's leading baseball hitting home runs. And when he's not pitching, by the way, he's still in the lineup every night as a designated hitter. It's really cool. It'd be, by the way, it'd be such a shame if he played in the National League where you didn't have designated hitters and he couldn't hit every night. But he's in the lineup every single day. And this is unicorn type of stuff where, I mean, Babe Ruth or Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson was a unicorn. Totally unique. Just something you'll never, ever see again in your lifetime. Like a mythical creature. Where, you know, in 1989, Bo Jackson played in Major League Baseball. He had 32 home runs and had 105 RBIs. Then later that fall, he played running back for the Raiders, and he averaged 5.5 yards per carry. Bo Jackson in 1989 was an all-star in Major League Baseball. The next year in 1990, he got named to the Pro Bowl in the NFL. (laughs) That's ridiculous. By the way, later in that year, 1990, before he could actually play in the Pro Bowl, I believe it was January 13th, 1991, the 1990 season, the playoff, uh, the series, it was a divisional round of the NFL playoffs. He dislocated his hip, the same injury that Tua actually had, and it ended his NFL career. But Bo Jackson is one of those guys that you're just never going to see ever again. A guy who literally you could argue could have been a Hall of Famer in, and maybe he, I don't actually know, is he a Hall of Famer in either sport? I don't know. He had the talent, definitely to be a Hall of Famer in Major League Baseball and the NFL. Someone let me know. I would imagine he didn't play long enough to become a Hall of Famer in either sport, uh, but somebody out there knows that. And by the way, have you ever seen the video of Bo Jackson throwing a guy down at third base from right field where he catches a fly ball in right field and then totally flat-footed launches a missile from right field all the way to third base and throws out a guy trying to tag up, and you're like, that's unbelievable. I, again, that's I call it unicorn stuff, stuff you're never going to see ever again. Ridiculous things to have that level of baseball talent and be an incredible running back in the NFL. And Shohei Otani is a guy like that, too, a guy that is doing stuff you're just never going to see ever again in your lifetime. It's a once-in-a-lifetime, completely unique player. That is what Shohei Otani is. And look, the other day he had a home run. He hit it 463 feet up into... The upper, upper, upper deck of the Seattle Mariners stadium, uh, like the fourth row, literally. And I grew up watching Mariners games uh, my whole life. Uh, I, uh, you know, from when I was like seven years old to like 13, I, I stopped being a Mariners fan at, at 13 years old. I gave up on that franchise. That's a whole different story. But uh, I watched for what, what it's seven, my, six years just in a row, every day, every night with my grandpa watching Mariners games during the summer. And... I have never seen a home run like that, that went that far, that high in Seattle. And uh, Monday night, by the way, we are getting a treat. Monday night, we have the Home Run Derby. Uh, It's Monday, June 12th on ESPN. Uh, That's on at 8 p.m. Eastern time, 5 p.m. Pacific time. But here's the cool thing about the Home Run Derby on Monday. 
the All-Star Game, therefore also the Home Run Derby, guess where it is? It's in Denver, Colorado at Coors Field. Coors, 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 however you say that. There's some way. I don't, I don't drink beer, actually, so make fun of me for that if you want. Uh, but in Denver, that's a place where the ball literally travels farther <laughs> because of the elevation. And so I personally cannot wait to watch Shohei Otani hit home run after home run in Denver in the Home Run Derby on Monday. Uh, I expect him to win. It's on Tuesday again. Uh, I recommend you watch it. it it's going to be, I think, a really, really special, fun thing to watch. Just, I'm the kind of guy, I, I must not be the only person who watch. I just watch home run compilations. I love watching. A home run is a special, fun, exciting thing. And I guess the story of the home run derby is, I mean, the question is, can anybody beat Shohei Otani? Like, it would be a surprise. He's my favorite to win. It'd be a surprise if Shohei Otani did not win the home run derby, but that's the injury. Like that's the draw. Let's see what happens. That'll be fun. By the way, the MLB All Star Game is on. Uh, sorry, well, did I say Tuesday? So home run derby is on Monday. Then on Tuesday, July thirteenth, the MLB All Star Game happens. That's uh, seven p.m. Eastern time, four p.m. Pacific time on ESPN. Uh, I recommend watching that too, man. Major League Baseball has the best All Star Game in America. Like. The NBA guys phone it in. There's no defense at all. Uh, in the NFL, nobody really tries in the Pro Bowl because nobody wants to get hurt. But baseball, their all-star game is interesting. It's competitive. Like, everybody plays. And, and pitchers, by the way, only pitch, like, one inning. So it's not everybody gets a shot. Everybody, you know, gets in the game. And so you don't see, like, a lot of people play for the whole game. But uh, it's still the best in the world at baseball against the other guys that are the best in the world at baseball. And it's fun, that matchup, the the competitiveness. Uh, Like, I'll never forget the day when, was it 2006? 2007? I think think it was 2007 when Ichiro hit a inside-the-park home run, took a weird bounce in uh, in San Francisco, uh, the Giants ballpark. I think AT&T Park is what it's called. And, I mean, I I remember... Actually, funny, there's another Seattle connection there where... um, Oh, what's his name? Ken Griffey Jr. I, I blank on names all the time. Ken Griffey Jr. was in right field trying to field the ball that Ichiro hit. It's like, ah, what a weird, fun connection. And Ichiro had this around, you know, inside the park home run. Moments like that. I mean, this is real, fun, exciting, competitive baseball. And it's the best guys in the world at what they do. And, and you know, for, for Major League Baseball players, I mean, they play, what, like 100? Literally, it's 162 regular season games a year. What's one more game? Like, you can't give effort for two or three innings when you play in the All-Star game. Guys do that, and it's awesome. I, I just, I, gosh, I recommend you watch the MLB All-Star Game. If you've ever played baseball, if you've ever liked baseball before, even if, you're not, even if you're not the biggest baseball fan, go watch the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. It's going to be awesome. Uh, and I am not sponsored by ESPN. I actually hate ESPN going on. I got some stuff behind the scenes that they won't pay me for work I did, and it's like, God, come on, guys. What? It's been a battle. Um, by the way, I don't want defamation. I, I think we figured it out. It, just, it was a battle for like a month. I'm like, come on, guys. Like, Can we get the paperwork figured out? So I actually hate ESPN, to, to be clear. Um, but I, <laughs> you got to watch where the sports are. So uh, I got a, another cool story I want to talk about. Thursday, a few days ago, July 8th, a relief pitcher for the San Diego Padres, Daniel Camarena, was called up from AAA to play in the game. And he hit a grand slam in his second ever Major League Baseball at bat. Again, that day he got called up. I guess he'd been called up before in the past. 
And uh, the starting pitcher for the Padres, Yu Darvish, had a really bad game. Uh, gave up six runs in the first three innings, just not his day. And so Camarena came in in the top of the fourth inning as the relief pitcher. And he, by the way, he gave up two runs very quickly. So the Padres were down eight to nothing. And in the bottom of the fourth inning, Camarena hit a grand slam. It's like, oh my goodness. Off of Max Scherzer, by the way. That's, that's impressive. And so he gave up two runs pitching, but then Daniel Camarena made up for it and got, you know, he batted in four runs. And it's so cool. This guy is a local kid. Camarena is a local kid. Grew up like 15 minutes from San Diego. His family was at the game. His dad was there. Uh, God, it almost made me cry. I mean, it did make me like feel, I didn't actually shed a tear, but my eyes welled up and you're like right on the verge. When you watch his dad celebrate, when he hits a grand slam in that moment at home in San Diego, his local team, like, oh my gosh, it was really, really cool to see. Uh, like you, you could just see how proud and how happy his dad was. That's a very special moment. I'm really close to my dad. Uh, but yeah, his second ever MLB at bat, he hit a grand slam off of Max Scherzer. And by the way, he was down in the count 0-2. He ended up, there was like a, he, he had a ball and it, it, he didn't hit a grand slam on the 0-2 count. But he was down in the count at 1.0-2. And, and it, it's just ridiculous. I mean, the Padres went on to win the game 9-8 to with a walk-off base hit in the bottom of the ninth. They started down 8 to nothing, Then they won 9-8. to And you're like, man, that's just an unbelievable fun story. Um, there's just a lot of good stuff going on in baseball. I saw the unfortunate news a couple minutes ago, uh, right before the All-Star break, too, really sad. Uh, Ronald Lacuna Jr., uh, tore his ACL for the Braves. That's unfortunate. But, uh, I, look, I, I can't cover baseball. It's like I, I talk about Shohei Otani today. And how do you keep up? Because he's literally playing right now as I talk. Man, I can't, I just can't keep up with all that. But, um, I, I, when I can, I watch. And, and baseball, gosh, for all its problems, really does. It's a great sport. I, I always say, I struggle with Major League Baseball as a league. Like, they have problems. They didn't really punish the Astros at all. Like, I, I have a lot of Rob Manfred and, and problems and things I don't like about Major League Baseball. I, I do like adding a runner on second base in extra innings. That, I think, has been phenomenal this year. But for all its shortcomings, it's still, you know, it's America's thing, man. It's just a really cool sport. Uh, I grew up playing it. I think a lot of people in America grew up playing it. And my goodness, I mean, again, for all the problems Major League Baseball has, the sport of baseball itself, I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll watch Little League Baseball, I'll watch baseball in Japan, in South Korea, I don't care. It's a wonderful sport. And right now, recently, I've been really into Major League Baseball, and they've been delivering with really, really interesting, fun stuff going on. Okay, I want to shift gears from Major League Baseball to the NFL. This is a story that uh, I saw and I went, what? Like the audacity. Are you kidding me? So here's what happened. New England Patriots receiver Nikhil Harry has formally requested a trade. Uh, he's a former first round pick. He was drafted 32nd overall in 2019. And uh, unfortunately, he's been a massive disappointment to this part, uh, point in his career. He's just been so, so not what he needed to become. He He was expected to become a number one receiver in New England. It just hasn't happened. He's 6'4", 23 years old, played in college at Arizona State, but has not at all uh, delivered on what... I mean, his tape in college was good, and he just hasn't worked out in New England. 
And it's pretty baffling, you know, how bad the Patriots have been over the years at developing young receivers. So I, I, I do wonder how much that plays a part here. But I also, I would imagine that the Patriots head coach, Bill Belichick, heard this and just laughed. He went, what? Are, are, are you kidding? You, you, you're demanding a trade. You want out. <laughs> the audacity, like you want to be traded. I mean, I just, I can't imagine Bill Belichick didn't kind of scoff at that. Like, uh, you haven't done anything. This is like, I remember uh, in The Mummy, Jake Johnson, who is an actor. I, I really like Jake Johnson, uh, played uh, Nick in New Girl. He's in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Got a, a great voice. Sounds a lot like John Boy, by the way. Listen to, listen to Jake Johnson, the actor, and then listen to John Boy. And they sound the same. It's, it's hilarious. But this, so Jake Johnson was in a movie, The Mummy, with Tom Cruise, co-starring alongside Tom Cruise. And imagine, just imagine that Jake Johnson, who is like an established actor, but I would say he's even more established in his field than Nikhil Harry is in his own. But imagine he was like making demands left and right and causing all this pro- these problems. And it's like, hey, um, are you Tom Cruise? Oh, you're not? Oh, I'm sorry. Shut up. Like, <laughs> you're you're lucky to be here, dude. You're lucky to be in this movie alongside Tom Cruise. Nikhil Harry is lucky to be in New England playing for Bill Belichick. That's un- unfortunately, or not, depending on how you look at it. I mean, that, that is the reality of the situation. In two years, Nikhil Harry's played in 22 games, 21 regular season games, one postseason game. He only has 47 catches. For 435 yards and four touchdown catches. That's nothing. That's like half, in two years, by the way, that's like half of what DK Metcalf in Seattle did just last year. Like, that's half of what DK did in one season last year in Seattle. And they were drafted, by the way, in the same draft class. And Nikhil Harry was drafted ahead of DK Metcalf. Now, his agent, uh, Nikhil Harry's agent, put out a statement uh, the argument from Nikhil Harry's camp is that, hey, I've gotten 88 targets in two years, and how can I put up good numbers if I'm not getting an opportunity to catch the ball? <sighs> okay, I I kind of understand, like, you can make that argument, but also, like, there's a reason you're not getting targeted either. Like, you kind of have to, th- that's a very, very basic argument that is from a guy who probably the, the agent made that argument going, Hey, what's happening here? But there's a reason he's not getting thrown the ball. He's not getting open. (laughs) I mean, Nikhil Harry could not make it work with Tom Brady. Now, in fairness, he was hurt for half the year that he played with Tom Brady his rookie year. But Tom Brady makes every receiver better. Everyone he's ever played with played their best when they played with Tom Brady. And even Tom Brady... Couldn't make Nikhil Harry look good. That says a lot. I mean, Tom Brady found a way to work with crazy man Antonio Brown. Antonio Brown's career was over. And Tom Brady said, hey, come here. I'll make it work with you. And he managed him and dealt with his crazy man stuff and won a Super Bowl with Antonio Brown. I I, I truly believe the only quarterback in the NFL that could have made Antonio Brown work last year is Tom Brady. I mean, Tom Brady woos him and is kind to him and... Deals with this nonsense, you know, and just kind of shepherds him and leads him along the way to winning a Super Bowl. And so, again, it's very telling. You couldn't make it work with Tom Brady. That says something. 
And there's a couple things here, a couple angles you can talk. Well, I want to talk about. Uh, number one is that the Patriots have no incentive to trade Nikhil Harry. Like th- he demands a trade, and they go, <laughs> "Okay, like so, so. Why would they? Why would they trade Nikhil Harry? He has potential. So first of all, you spent a first round pick on him, and you're still hoping he's going to turn into something more than what he's done. I mean, there are there's a lot of reports like maybe he won't make the team this year. But what's he worth? Like a seventh round pick? I mean, I, Bill Belichick is spiteful too. Bill Belichick is not the kind of guy that's like, let me help out this guy who's calling me out publicly. Nah, Bill Belichick doesn't roll that way. I don't, I don't think. And you could also make an argument. Hey, hey, everybody in Boston, I want to, to perk up their ears and listen to this for a moment. It's a flawed argument, but you could make the argument that Nikhil Harry played a part in Tom Brady wanting to leave. Just here's a fun what if. What if, what would have happened if Nikhil Harry had been a star receiver for Tom Brady to throw to? The same way that Terry McLaurin is in Washington or DK Metcalf is in Seattle. What if Nikhil Harry had been incredible? Would Tom Brady have left? It's a, it's a fun what if. I mean, Tom Brady seems way happier in Tampa. He's doing interviews, Howard Stern. The shop, it's pretty clear uh, that he's been unshackled and allowed to be himself much more in Tampa than when he played for Bill Belichick. That's undeniable. But it's still a fun question to ask. Like, what if Nikhil Harry had been a star? (laughs) What if Tom Brady had had a DK Metcalf-level receiver to throw to in 2019? He didn't. But would things have gone down the same way they did? Would Tom Brady have left? Remember, in 2019, Nikhil Harry was drafted ahead of DK Metcalf, A.J. Brown, Terry McLaurin, Deontay Johnson in Pittsburgh, and they each had better numbers last year alone than Nikhil Harry has put up in two years combined in New England. Now, I I do got to say this. Here is who should make a move and trade for Nikhil Harry. Will the trade happen? I don't know. But if I am in the Pittsburgh Steelers a team who is historically ridiculously good at developing young receivers. I mean, they take no-name guys and late-round draft picks and turn them into stars. I mean, that's what Antonio Brown was. Antonio Brown was a guy who they turned him into a star after being drafted like, what do you play, like Toledo or some accurate, some some, like tiny school, came out of nowhere. Was a star, dude. Uh, James, like there's so many, James Washington, there's so many guys. I don't, someone else can compile that. In fact, actually, hey, Devin uh, from the Here We Go show, my buddy Devin. Devin, I want you to make a video uh, breaking down the success that Pittsburgh has had at developing young receivers. And, you know, they could fix Nikhil Harry. They have done it in the past. They can take a guy who's really talented and teach him how to be a great receiver. That's what I think Nikhil Harry needs. And and New England just doesn't have, I I think, the skill set to make that happen. Now, would New England trade Nikhil Harry to Pittsburgh? That's unlikely. I don't think that would happen. They're not going to trade him to another team in their conference, the AFC. Now, they could play Pittsburgh later in the playoffs. Why would they do that? They don't want to play Nikhil Harry down the road. But Nikhil Harry, go watch his film in college, man. He was talented. Had great ball skills, made great uh, jump balls. That was his thing. Another, you know, the Colts could use a receiver. Uh, the Ravens with Lamar Jackson could use another receiver. 
if I'm the Ravens or the Colts, that's a risk worth taking. Hey, I'll give you a fifth round pick for Nikhil Harry. I'll overpay by maybe a round or two. You know, the, the, the market says it's like a sixth round pick. I'll give you a fourth round pick to take a flyer on a guy we know is really talented who maybe I could develop. It's possible Nikhil Harry's in the wrong situation. It's possible he doesn't work hard. I, I don't know. It's Again, I'm pretty, if you can't work with Tom Brady, I'm pretty skeptical of you. But again, I ask you, why would New England trade Nikhil Harry, a former first-round pick, to another AFC team? The Colts, the Ravens, the Steelers, teams that they might play in the playoffs. I, I don't know why they would do that, unless, I guess, if they completely have no respect for Nikhil Harry, they think he's awful, <laughs> and they just don't think he's going to do anything. And maybe that's the truth. Maybe they think they're going to get a steal by trading him away. They're like, hey, we can take this guy who we're going to cut and is useless to us who we just have no faith in. We can trade him for nothing and get better. It's better than cutting him, maybe. Um, I'm imagining the Patriots are the kind of team that would trade him away and get like, use the draft, pick the draft like a Hall of Fame player. That's because that's what the Patriots do, it seems like. They make, they always win every trade. Um, but again, I ask you, like, why Why would they trade Nikhil Harry away? Unless, again, they think he's hopeless. If you're going to cut him, I guess it makes sense. But also, Bill Belichick, again, is, is the kind of guy, you. he got called out publicly by Nikhil Harry saying, you're not targeting me if I don't like the way you're using me. Okay, buddy, go sit on the bench. I'm going to bury you. I, I could see Belichick doing that. Maybe the Patriots would trade him to Arizona, an NFC team. A different conference across the other side of the country. And and that'd be interesting watching Nikhil, Nikhil Harry play with, you know, DeAndre Hopkins and Kyler Murray playing for Cliff Kingsbury alongside Christian Kirk. I mean, I, I could see that being interesting, learning from older veteran receivers. And I guess, though, the reality is I'd be I'd be very surprised if the Patriots did anything. My prediction is they're not going to move an inch. They're gonna like they're not even gonna lift a finger. They're gonna be like ah nah, it, it, we're not. You know they're probably just gonna tell Nikhil Harry to shut up and go back to work. Like, hey uh, stop calling us out, keep your mouth shut, be quiet. I will say it's a bit interesting. I mean this is something that I I've never seen a player have the I guess the balls to call out like to speak up in New England. Everybody in that organization always keeps it very quiet. They don't call people out. They don't demand trades. I've never seen anything like this. So maybe that means something. I don't, I don't like, I mean, is it a Tom Brady thing being gone? Is, is this a, a sign that the culture is unraveling? I don't know. I don't think so. I think it's kind of a rogue guy who is angry and upset with how his career is going and would rather blame the Patriots than be honest about his work ethic. I mean, it, here's the problem to kill Harry. Is he saying, it's your fault, not mine. How about work your tail off? If you work your butt off, you're going to succeed. Most of the time, I mean, not everybody has the skill set. I mean, I, I certainly never, ever could become a amazing sumo wrestler. Like, I just don't have the build. Look at me. I, I could never be a sumo wrestler. I'm, I'm 5'11", skinny. I, I, no, that can't happen. But Nikhil Harry does have the skill set to be a great NFL receiver. And the question is, why is that not being developed why is he not improving and rather than own hey i gotta be better and work my tail off it feels like he's just blaming the patriots for not throwing him the ball and that to me that's a sign of a guy i don't really know i would want on my team so uh, it's an interesting storyline to keep your eyes on 
Will Nikhil Harry get traded? Where would he go? What could the Patriots get for him? I mean, again, in college, this dude was a stud. Great at catching jump balls. He has potential, but so far he's been a massive, massive disappointment. So keep your eye on that story. I'm very, very curious what's going to happen with Nikhil Harry. All right, guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break when I return. We're going to talk about Formula One. Uh, sprint qualifying is here. That'll be really interesting. It's going to be a, a new twist to Formula One that'll make it even more fascinating. We'll do Ask Zach. A lot of good questions there. Uh, and then later, I've got an interview with my buddy Marcel Frazier. He is coaching in the European League of Football. Great friend of mine. We go way back. I love that dude to death. Uh, he, again, he's coaching in the European League of Football. That should be really interesting. So my name is Zach Schaumler, and I will be right back. All right, we are back. Hope you're doing very, very well. Uh, I want to jump in. We'll talk about Formula One right now. Formula One is making a change. They are adding something called sprint qualifying. And, man, it's going to be used in three races this year in 2021. The first of them is going to be at, in Silverstone uh, in the UK. That will be July 18th, next Sunday. And so here's how, by the way, a normal race weekend goes for me. Qualifying is on Saturday. Uh, the race, the Grand Prix, is on Sunday. And qualifying determines the starting grid for Sunday's race, the big race on Sunday. You know this if you follow Formula 1 at all. And I do not normally watch very much of qualifying. I record it. I record everything in the sports world. I got YouTube TV. It's amazing. I got an unlimited DVR. Uh, so I record qualifying and then I watch maybe the last three minutes of Q3, if it's interesting, if it's close, like to see who the top 10 are for the starting grid. Uh, I've also recently been watching a lot of Q2. Like I watch the end of Q2 as well because I want to see if George Russell makes it into uh, Q3 and how it happens. He's usually been like 12th, 11th, 10th, 8th, 9th, like right at the, kind of right at the edge of the top 10. But for the most part, I don't watch qualifying. I watch the end of Q2 sometimes and the end of Q3 sometimes. Uh, it's just not a draw, though. I mean, sometimes in the past, I have even just read the results. I mean, you can find the list online. Hey, Max was first. Lewis second. Valtteri Botas third. Like, you can find that pretty easily. And actually, sometimes it's more accurate than watching because a guy will get a grid penalty, and you won't really find out what the starting grid is till four hours later. So watching qualifying, the traditional qualifying, actually is either boring, unhelpful, or not that interesting. And I, I love racing, but that's not really racing. It's just like a, it's like a time trial. Well, Formula One wants to make qualifying more interesting. And I, I, I'm all for it. And, and I got to say, I applaud uh, the FIA and Formula One for being willing to experiment and trying new things. So they're adding sprint qualifying. Here is how sprint qualifying works. On Friday... You have your traditional average qualifying session. You have your Q1, Q2, Q3. What normally happens on Saturday will be moved back to Friday. So Friday, traditional qualifying. That determines the starting grid for Saturday. And on Saturday, you have the sprint. And the sprint is, here's how it works. It's a short 100-kilometer race. Uh, it's about less than a third of a normal race. So it'll be about a 25-minute, 30-minute race. And there are no mandatory pit stops. There are no mandatory tire changes. First place gets three points. Second place gets two points. And third place gets one point. 
in the drivers and uh, I think in the championship standings as well. But for your for the championship trophy, that's it's it's a one, two, or three championship points. But what's really cool about it is not necessarily the points; it's that the results of the sprint, you know, the, the finishing order of the sprint race on Saturday becomes the starting grid for the big race, the Grand Prix on Sunday. So it, it's a race that determines the starting grid of the next race. It, it's way more compelling of a way to do qualifying. And I absolutely love this idea. It's more racing. I, I love racing. My favorite sports right now, I, I love football. That's my favorite sport, always will be. Right now, Formula One, that's my second favorite sport. I, I just have to admit, I love it tremendously. I I don't get any views on my Formula One videos. Like, not really. I do it because I love it. Like, I really just love the sport. And to have about a half an hour of exciting, interesting drama on a Saturday that I don't normally watch racing on, that's more of what I love. That makes me happy. And Formula One is happy because they're going to get my attention for more of the weekend. They used to get it for, like, five minutes on Saturday. I would record it, maybe pay attention, maybe not. Now they're going to guarantee, hey, I'm going to watch the sprint. That sounds awesome. And I'm going to watch on Sunday, and I'll probably see what happened on Friday. So you get at least 30 more minutes of my attention to, to you know, do advertisements for me and to get you know to you know market stuff at me basically. And I'm all for hey, you give me the product. I love racing. You can market and advertise at me all you want. And I'm I have no doubt. I don't know what anyone. I, I I'm pretty lucky actually to live in America. So I don't. There is no nobody covers Formula One in America. There's no like people in my area that I hear yelling about stuff or talking about this. It's it's actually hard for me to find Formula One coverage. And the internet makes it easier, but it's certainly not in my face. I have to go out and find it. So I don't know what people are saying about sprint qualifying. I would imagine people are angry. Uh, there are a lot of purists out there. They probably call it gimmicky, and they're complaining. And I, I don't blame them. Like I, people hate change. I know I do too. Uh, a podcast I love uh, just got a new host recently, and it was it was a jarring change for me. Like I don't like when things change. It's very very difficult for me. But I this is one I love. I love the idea of sprint qualifying. It sounds awesome. It sounds interesting. It's more racing. I love watching racing, and I cannot wait to watch the debut of sprint qualifying at Silverstone. It's going to be awesome. Next Sunday, uh, July 18th, it's going to be, I guess, Saturday, July 17th, July 18th is a race. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be so much fun. Uh, a great weekend, and uh, I'm excited to see the debut of sprint qualifying in Formula One. All right, guys, uh, it's time for Ask Zach, my favorite part of the show. It's where I answer questions from the audience. Oh, yeah, I get to hear from you guys. Uh, in case you do not know how it works, you go to patreon.com forward slash Zach Shomler. You give a dollar a month. You can give more if you want to, please do. A uh, dollar a month literally helps me pay my rent. It makes a huge impact on my life. It's my most stable income. Uh, so, hey, support me if you want to. Uh, now, I just I try to be very transparent, very honest. For clarity, I don't – if you submit a question, I do not guarantee to read your question or answer your question on the show. My only guarantee is I look at every single question with my eyeballs, and I pick the top couple to read at the end of every show. Uh, so let's jump in. Question number one today. It's from Dylan. Dylan writes in. He says, how would you make Madden good if you were in charge of EA Sports? So the most important, I, I play single player Madden. I don't play Madden online. I'm probably not even good enough. I probably get my butt kicked. But I love, I love, I love, I love, I love 
franchise mode. And I I, I bought Madden 17 uh, when that came out. I hated franchise mode. It was awful. It's the only like new Madden I have. And I gave up on the series after that. Madden franchise mode in that game was awful and not interesting and not very compelling. Uh, I go. I play Madden 11 still on the PlayStation 3. I have. I actually have three PlayStation 3s. I, I take very good care of them. I'm not kidding. Like when I'm not playing my PlayStation 3, it's in a like a computer bag inside Tupperware. I'm not getting dust on that thing. I'm gonna let that. I want that thing to run for 20 years because it's the only way I can play Madden 11 now. So I, I really, really passionately love my PlayStation 3. I take great care of it because I want to play Madden 11 there. So I, my first thought, hey, fix Madden franchise mode. Make it deeper. Invest more into it. Uh, really, really make that quality worth playing. Uh, now, I, I wouldn't do much with online. I don't even know what the online ecosystem is in Madden. I think there's Ultimate Team and people do that and good for them. But another thing I would probably do is make Madden a platform. Madness yearly football video game. It comes out every year, so I would just stop releasing a new game every year. It's not necessary, and it, it, it appears like the team at EA Sports starts almost from scratch every year rebuilding a new game, uh, and, and not the core gameplay mechanics like, you know, running, passing. Like, Madden, the gameplay stays static for a couple of years, and they update it every, like, three, four years, but... It's like they rebuild franchise mode. They rebuild Road to the Show, uh, not Road to the Show, Road to Glory is what it's called probably. Either way, it's it, it feels like they start from scratch, and then every year there's this like mad dash to try to meet the deadline. And it, it's the problem with trying to meet a deadline every year is it strips away all the quality from the game. And a lot of time Madden's just a roster update every year anyway. So... I, trying to meet a yearly deadline with a game like Madden is kind of like a YouTuber that tries to make a video every single day. You never see the guy that tries to upload something every single day. It's a war of escalation. It's not healthy. You're always trying to make a newer, better idea, and you're you're forcing it. People force it all the time when it comes to art. And for, for lack of a better term, Madden is still art. It's still a creative endeavor. And the minute you put finances ahead of quality you lose big time and that's i i fight that every day with strong opinion sports i really want to make quality and it's it's hard for me to like not put finances at the front you know forefront of my mind but you can't do that and make a sustainable quality show like i i firmly believe that if you make quality people will stick around and people will care and you have to look at the long-term gain rather than the short-term financial gain. I, I, I would like I, I cover Formula One. I know people don't follow me for Formula. Like the people that watch my film analysis videos, probably hate that I cover Formula One. I get that, but I'm building something. I'm building another side of my audience. I, I have people now that follow me only for Formula One. They don't like basketball. They don't like football. They like when I cover for. It's only like a thousand people. But a thousand becomes two thousand, becomes three thousand. It's an investment in the future, and so I want Madden to put quality ahead of their yearly deadline. Hey, make make me pay for the game, the base platform, and then every year put out a ten, fifteen, thirty dollar update with a couple new features, and that way for the year you work on a new features to add to the base game rather than putting out a new base game every year for seventy, sixty bucks. It's nonsense. 
uh, and eventually it becomes forced. So I, that's how I would fix the video game Madden, a game I, I love sports video games. I, 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 MLB The Show is my favorite one. Uh, 2K is great. It's fun to build a team on 2K. You learn how to master some guy's shot and hit three-pointers. Um, man, 2K, MLB The Show, uh, Madden. I'm trying to think of another one. There's another one that's really... I want. I really want to play the F1 game at some point. Uh, I'm a ways off from ever doing that, but that would be another fun endeavor someday. I, I mean, really, if I ever got rich, rich, uh, which... Man, we're a ways away from that. But if I ever had like a lot of expendable money, I would just build one of those really cool driving simulators and, and you know, like actually race in Formula One virtually. Like that'd be so fun. But that's, I feel like you'd have like a lot of expendable income to do that. I, I don't, <laughs> certainly not there. I'm trying to survive. So uh, I, that sounds fun to me though. Okay, Devin writes in. Devin says, Hey, Zach, what do you think of the new iCarly? Personally, there's a lot of changes I would make if I was showrunner. For example, I feel like Freddy's daughter just takes away so much from valuable screen time from the important characters. Is there anything you would have changed? So I haven't seen the new iCarly. I wanted to talk about this, though, because it looks really interesting. I think it's on Paramount Plus, if I am right. Um, I want to watch it. I've just been slammed uh, getting ready for my move. First week of August, I'm moving away uh, out of the lower 48. That's going to be wild. And it's the logistics of planning a move are like my car ships away next Friday. I won't have a car for three weeks. That's going to be unbelievably hard. Um, but what I've seen from iCarly so far, it looks adult, looks interesting. And I kind of want to invite more people to write in about this. If you've watched the new iCarly, let me know if it's worth, it looks like it's worth watching. I, my fiance has never seen any of the old iCarly stuff. So it'd be fun to introduce her to that as well. Um, but yeah, feel free to write in. Let me know what you thought of iCarly and I, I, it looks like something maybe in February when football season is over. <laughs> like it'll be a while. Plus, money's tight. I don't really feel like adding a new subscription service to my uh, my finances. But hey, at some point I'll get to it. I hope. And it, at some point I'd like to watch the new um, iCarly series. It, it, there's like sex jokes, and there's Freddie has a kid, and there's it's just all kinds. It's it's much more. I think there's cussing, like mature content, which I it's aimed at you know, 24, 25 year olds that watched it when they were, you know, 14, however old I was when I watched it, that grew up and that now are adults and want to watch Miranda Cosgrove be an adult. I think that's awesome. And I'm all for it. Okay. Jeffrey writes in, we're just having not sports, I guess, to end the show here. Uh, he says, Hey Zach, what's your top three favorite movies? Keeping it simple today. Keep up the great work. Uh, before I do my top three, I want to give a shout. There's a movie I'm obsessed with right now. I really want to watch it with my fiance. So I'm starting a movie podcast. It's it's coming. I'm working on it every every week. I get a little bit closer to putting it out. Um, the next movie I'm covering is Moneyball. That's not really. It's a baseball movie, but it's not really a baseball movie. But that's that's one of those movies. It's not in my top three, but it's an honorable mention. That's a phenomenal movie. That movie, Ford versus Ferrari, is another one that's really really good. Sherlock Holmes is great with. Uh, What's his name? Uh, Robert Downey Jr. But here, here are my top three. My top three favorite movies. Uh, my first two are 1A and 1B in no order. And then my third favorite movie is the movie Rush. So Rush is a movie about... It's funny. I, I, I loved it way before I loved Formula One. But ironically, it's a Ron Howard movie about two Formula One drivers. It's about Nicky Lauda and James Hunt. Nicky Lauda, an Austrian driver, and James Hunt, a British driver. James Hunt is uh, played by Chris Hemsworth. Uh, I forget the name of the guy who plays Nicky Lauda, but he's very famous. He's in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as well. 
He's the bad guy in Captain America Civil War. Yep. Civil War. Anyway, it's about two drivers with an opposite approach. They both win world titles, but one guy is all preparation and the other guy is all balls, is all talent. And he's like, hey, I'm going to take the risk and go for that gap. But the other guy's like, why would I need to go for the risk? I, I just, I outcalculated you. So it's interesting to watch how they diverge. And the question is, does it even really work for either one of them? Are they either one of them really happy? So that's my third favorite movie. Now, my top two favorite movies are, again, in no order. La La Land, a musical, which I never would have thought I would love that movie. It makes me cry every time I watch it. And then 2009 Star Trek. So we'll start with a more manly movie, I guess, because toxic masculinity is fun. Uh, I love 2009 Star Trek. It's my favorite movie. Like, God, dude, it's so fun. It, uh, I, when I was a kid, my, my three favorite people that I wanted to be like were Captain Kirk, Captain James T. Kirk, Han Solo, and Jack Sparrow from Pirates of the Caribbean. And I, I loved the, I think it was in the, from, from the 60s, the old Star Trek Captain Kirk TV show. And this movie so well honors the past while also continuing the future of Star Trek. And uh, Chris Pine is a great James T. Kirk, and it's, it's so, so good. Great movie. It's fun. I'll watch it. I watched it three times in one day. I'm not kidding. It's a phenomenal... It's just fun. The music is great. The ending credits are, like, phenomenal. Like, the music and the ending credits are really phenomenal. Uh, Michael Giacchino made it. I, I cannot recommend it enough. If you haven't, it's it's free. Star Trek 2009. It's made by J.J. Abrams. It's on Netflix. Go watch it. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal movie. Uh, my favorite ever. Like, it's so good. Now, my other, my second, my other favorite, it's not my second, it's my other favorite movie is La La Land. A, gosh, it's a musical. And I, and I love it. I, City of Stars, are you shining just for me? Like, I, I dude, I, I love, love, love the music in that movie. And it feels weird to say that, but it, it's honest. Here's why I love it. A, the, the attention to detail, the way they made the movie is incredible. Um, there's like these long tracking shots and these really long continuous shots and amazing chore- uh, choreography and like really, really impressive behind the scenes filmmaking. You go, this is just a really, really well-made movie. That's It's impressive how they put it together. But also the story. So filmmaking is great. The music is good. But the story is so good. It's about chasing a dream. And... There's a song, It's the lyrics go like, here's to the ones who dream, here's to the hearts who ache, um, to the foolish as they may seem. Like, it's, it's about, it's talking about chasing a dream. And God damn, that's what I did for years. I slept under my desk in a college dorm room recording my stupid sports podcast, like, chasing my dream. And... I pulled all-nighters like crazy. I was full-time working as a student. I was full-time working a real job for ESPN and recording my show on the side. Like, I was killing myself every single day. And I still do. I mean, every day you wake up and you attack life because life, the the fight doesn't ever end. There's always more to do. There's always other stuff. And th- that... That pursuit of your dreams and what you want, like it never does stop. I my a dream my whole life was to move to Hawaii. On on August seventh, I'm moving to Hawaii. Like that's a dream I fought 
so, I'm going to say it, so fucking hard for. Sorry about, excuse my French, I don't really care. I fought for that. And this movie speaks to those people who have a dream, who understand what it's like to ache and yearn and want to succeed and want to have some of your dreams. And I, I am nowhere near all my dreams, but man, I, I have my dream job. I've got my dream fiance. Like I, my life's really amazing. And I fought hard for that. I really, really put in a, a lot, a lot, a lot of work. And you have to work like others won't. And this movie, La La Land, I, I guess my rant is, is ending now. Go watch it. If you're someone who has a dream, it'll make you cry. It's unavoidable. It will really speak to your heart and the ache inside your heart, your desire to succeed. It, La La Land, the, the song Money Right by John Bellion, those are a couple things that just, if you're a person who is in the hunt chasing a dream, it will really, really speak to you to watch La La Land. Okay, Hunter writes in. Hunter says, hey, Zach, I'm a huge fan. My question is, what is your Super Bowl 56 dark horse team? Mine is the L.A. Chargers. He said Los Angeles. I don't know why I said L.A. Uh, I guess we're at Super Bowl 56 already. That's I mean, I think you mean this year. I didn't realize we were that many Super Bowls in already. Um, so I actually have five dark horse teams. Dark horse is defined as someone who is not expected to win. So let me let me be clear. Actually, let me let me back up. Here are my my favorites to win the NFL Super Bowl. Probably Kansas City, the Chiefs. They have Patrick Mahomes. Uh, they went to Super Bowl last year. They reloaded their offensive line. Like, Kansas City is a favorite for sure. Uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they have Tom Brady. They return all 22 starters. That means they drew the draft. They just got better. Now, the Buccaneers will be back. Their division is actually probably weaker than it was last year. Uh, the Rams should be a favorite to win the Super Bowl. They went 10-6 and six last year. They were a playoff team the year before. Uh, I, mean, I mean, last year in 2020. They had the best defense last year in the NFL and they upgraded at quarterback. So a team that was really good just got even better with Matthew Stafford at quarterback now. Expect the Rams to be in the hunt for a Super Bowl. And then the Buffalo Bills are a team that came really close to a Super Bowl, too. They made it to the AFC Championship game. Uh, Josh Allen made a huge, you know, took a huge step forward. The Bills will be better this year, I, I think, take another step forward. So the favorites right now in the NFL got to be Kansas City, Buffalo, the L.A. Rams, and the Buccaneers. But I have five teams that are dark horse teams that I think could be really good, depending on a factor or two, but teams that no one really, I think, they might be expected to be playoff teams, but they're not expected to be Super Bowl teams, if that makes sense. So here are my five dark horse teams in the NFL. You have, number one, the Indianapolis Colts. This is probably the least dark horsey team. Funny, the Colts, that's a horse. Anyway, uh, they're adding Carson Wentz, quarterback from... Uh, Philadelphia, coming off an awful year. Worst year of his career. Got benched, lost his job, made bad decisions. I I've covered it to death. But some people think it's not going to work. Like, there are people that, like, Philadelphia fans who are very biased, they're like, he's awful, not going to work, he sucks. And it comes down to how much of an impact do you believe Carson Wentz is going to have with the Colts? Is he going to make them even better and push them over the edge to a Super Bowl? They were a playoff team last year. Or is he going to fail? And if you believe in Carson Wentz, then therefore you have to also believe that the Colts are a team that could contend for a Super Bowl. Does their, their team is that good. The coach, the team, they run the ball well, they play great defense. Um, if, if you assume Carson's going to be a great quarterback, then you have to therefore also assume the Colts are going to be a Super Bowl contender. Number two, another dark horse team. The Denver Broncos are a team that has an amazing, 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 amazing roster. 
They just need good quarterback play. And they need to stay healthy. And I remember when Kurt Warner revived his career in Arizona and went to a Super Bowl with the Arizona Cardinals. I remember when Matt Schaub led the NFL in passing in 2009. Like, is it? does anyone expect Teddy Bridgewater to be amazing? We think he's going to be the starting quarterback in Denver. I, I think he's going to beat out Drew Locke. There's a reason they traded for Teddy Bridgewater. I don't think an Aaron Rodgers trade is going to happen for Denver. If they get Aaron Rodgers, they're definitely a Super Bowl contender. But Teddy Bridgewater might be the answer in Denver. And I have an open mind. I mean, for a brief moment in 2016, was it 2015? 2015, the year after. So 2015, Teddy Bridgewater was drafted in 2014, number first round pick in Minnesota. 2015, they go 11-5. and five, And you're like, oh, momentum is building. They found their franchise quarterback. 2016, during practice, horrific leg injury to Teddy Bridgewater. Since then, hasn't really had a shot. If Teddy ever is going to get a shot to show what could have been, it's 2021 this year in Denver with a stacked, loaded, incredibly talented roster in Denver. That's a dark horse team that I don't think people expect to be amazing that could be if they get good quarterback play from Teddy Bridgewater. Another dark horse team, the New Orleans Saints. I love Drew Brees. I, I love, love, love the former Saints quarterback, Drew Brees. He retired at 42 years old. That guy was not, not his best at the end. Uh, read the book, Coming Back Stronger, amazing book. I, I love I love Drew Brees, always will. But it is very possible and, and likely that Jameis Winston with good coaching from Sean Payton, who, by the way, remember, he revived Drew Brees' career, too. He, he turned Drew Brees into a guy that... He, he took Drew Brees from a guy who was cast off from San Diego, it, it, who, who got benched so that Phillip Rivers could be the starting quarterback in San Diego. Sean Payton took Drew Brees from an unwanted quarterback, who Miami, the Dolphins, wouldn't even take him, to a Hall of Fame quarterback. So... Don't underestimate the value that Sean Payton as a coach can bring to a quarterback. Jameis Winston's a former number one overall pick. He was Elite 11 MVP, a Heisman Trophy winner. Jameis Winston is a meathead sometimes. He does dumb stuff that makes you go, Jesus, dude, what are you doing? That's a bad decision. You don't steal crab legs. Like, oh, There's a couple of things you're like, Jameis, what are you doing? But you can't deny his ability. And despite having 30 interceptions in 2019, which is absurd, like 30, think about that. For almost every touchdown he threw, he had 33, he had 30 interceptions in 2019. That's ridiculous. Clearly, there's a decision-making problem there. But he also led the league in passing yards. Like, he, Jameis has talent and ability. Now he's going to get Sean Payton as his coach full-time with also— Commitment matters. Having a team commit to you and say, you're our guy, that matters too. It's very possible the Saints are a Super Bowl contender this fall. If, a big if, if Jameis Winston delivers and is really, really good. And all he really has to do is be better than Drew Brees was last year. And Drew was, you know, really declining at the end of the year. So keep your eye on Jameis Winston. That could be a team that surprises a lot of people. Because they're, they're, they're a good football. I mean, they won the division last year. They beat Tampa twice. Tampa won the Super Bowl last year. They, you know, they're a really, really good football team. Keep your eye on New Orleans. If they get good quarterback play from Jameis, 
They're going to be phenomenal. Another Super Bowl dark horse team is the Tennessee Titans. They got a, a defensive-minded coach. Uh, they've got some problems on defense, but they're, they're better than people realize. They were a playoff team last year. They have... I don't know how you stop the Titans offense this year. I, I can't wait to watch them. Ryan Tannehill is a really underrated quarterback. A guy who's not flashy, who will not blow you away. But a guy who's clutch, Ryan Tannehill, for lack of a better term, makes plays when it matters most. It's on third down, on fourth down, uh, on, on in, in the red zone. He runs for first downs. He's scrappy. He can make good throws. But you also now have you, 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 Derrick Henry at running back, who is, like, unbelievable. He's, he's the best running back in the NFL. And you have to load the box to stop the Titans' running game with Derrick Henry, meaning you have to put more bodies in the box near the line of scrimmage to stop Derrick Henry. The problem is that when you do that, it leads to better matchups on the outside for wide receivers, guys like Julio Jones, and who they traded for, and A.J. Brown. You're going to have a lot of man coverage downfield. You're going to have a lot of good matchups for Julio Jones and A.J. Brown. How do you defend the Titans' offense? I have no idea. They've got a quarterback who can deliver, who will make plays, who will not lose you a game. You've got a running back who will destroy you. And if you load the box to stop that running back, good luck defending both Julio Jones and A.J. Brown. You might have one great corner. You don't have two. Like, do, do the Titans play the Miami Dolphins this year? That would be really fun. Byron Jones, Xavier Howard against Julio Jones, and, gosh, A.J. Brown. That'd be a fun matchup. Two great corners against two great receivers. How do they stop the running game? Like, I want to watch Tennessee play Miami this year. That'd be really, really fun. But the Titans are a team that, hey, they were a playoff team last year. They upgraded. They're a Super Bowl dark horse team as well. My last Super Bowl dark horse team is Washington. The Washington football team, a team that I think had a losing record last year, actually. <laughs> but they won their division. They were a playoff team. Despite the fact they had four different starting quarterbacks last year, Kyle Allen, Dwayne Haskins, Alex Smith, and Taylor Henneke. Taylor Henneke, by the way, awesome in the NFL playoffs against Tampa. They lost, but he played great. He was kind of the bright spot. Got a contract, well-deserved. But Washington needed a quarterback last year. They didn't have one. Now they got one. Ryan Fitzpatrick, a guy who has done some really good stuff recently. Ryan Fitzpatrick, I feel bad for him. I went through a situation in college where I, I was lied to. I was told there was a competition. I was told I'd get a fair shot. And I did really well. Every time I played, I threw touchdown passes. I was phenomenal. And I did the best I could. But the reality is, the reality my coach wouldn't tell me, wouldn't be honest about was, he just wanted the other guy. It wasn't really a, a competition. He just liked the other guy better. And that's fine. I wish he would have said that. In Miami, they said straight up, hey, Ryan Fitzpatrick, we love you. You're 38 years old. We got to draft a quarterback with our number five overall pick, Tua Tungavaloa. And in Tampa in 2018, remember Ryan Fitzpatrick had an incredible run, like destroying NFL defenses. And if Ryan Fitzpatrick had done what he did at 36, 12 years earlier at 24 years old instead, teams would be building around 
Ryan Fitzpatrick. They would be committing a lot, saying, hey, how can we win with this guy? But because he's older, he's not viewed as a franchise quarterback. Now, Washington, God bless him, doesn't care how much longer Ryan Fitzpatrick has to play. They care, can you help us win now? Because we want to win in 2021. We don't care about 2025. We want to win right. We have a good team ready to win now. Ron Rivera is a no-nonsense head coach. He's ready to go. And Ryan Fitzpatrick's this wily veteran, a great leader who all he's needed is a team to commit to him. And man, we got it. I, I think Washington is a team that will shock a lot of people with, they added Curtis Samuel. They have Terry McLaurin. They added Ryan Fitzpatrick. They got a great defense. They got Chase Young's going to be back for his second year, going to be even better. It's a defensive rookie of the year last year. Uh, keep your eye on Washington. That's another dark horse team. So my five dark horse Super Bowl teams, the Colts, that's kind of cheating, but whatever. Depends on how you view Carson Wentz. The Broncos, I know that's a shock. But the roster's the roster's that good. They weren't that kind of respect. They just need good quarterback play from Teddy Bridgewater. The Saints, hey, if Jameis gets the coaching, I think he will. And Sean... Peyton has a huge impact the way he had on Drew Brees. Hey, Jameis could be amazing, and the Saints could be incredible. The Titans added Julio Jones. That adds a new dynamic to their team. I can't wait to watch that. Uh, and then Washington adding Ryan Fitzpatrick, the quarterback they've been missing. Might put them over the top. Uh, you don't understand how incredible it is that a team, a roster can be so good, they make the playoffs with four different starting quarterbacks in a single season. Unbelievable. It shows how good Washington's roster is. And how well coached they are. I'm constantly impressed with Ron Rivera. Those are my five Super Bowl dark horse teams. What a good segment, man. Hey, uh, Hunter. Thanks for writing in. I got a lot of time out of that. Didn't mean to. Well done, Hunter. Okay, Landon writes in. He says, if you had to compete in the Olympics, what sport would you do and why? Uh, I'd, I'd compete at the Winter Olympics. Not snowboarding, that's for sure. My knees would blow out. Uh, not probably not, but I, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm, ba- I can barely snowboard. Like I can stand up and ride down. I can't do jumps or anything. I'd probably do the broom thing. You know, you you got the broom and you're, you're pushing. What's that called? Uh, it's curling. I would do, I'd be curling. You know, that we slide the little rock and you, you broom the ice really fast. Come on, come on, come on. That, that's the sport I think I'd be good at because it takes very little athletic ability. And anymore, like Zach is not fast. I, I, I want to play flag football maybe. Um, even a year ago, I was in better shape. Like COVID hit. I got fat. I added like 10, 15 pounds. I mean, you can see. Go look at my face. Go look at old videos. I hope moving to Hawaii, uh, swimming every day is going to help that. <laughs> and yeah, I heard that stress can make you gain weight. I've definitely done that. Um, yeah, I do curling if I was an Olympic athlete. <laughs> Certainly not the 100-meter dash, dude. Oh, my gosh. Not right now. Nick writes in. He says, do you like sushi? If so, what's your favorite role? So I love sushi. Uh, I'm, I'm also very generic and very boring. I almost ashamed to admit this, but my favorite sushi roll is a California roll. Get that with some spicy mayo. Phenomenal. Now I have bad news. Uh, Nick, I love sushi. Great. Uh, you love some good avocado in there. Uh, raw fish is great, but I'm also, uh, the bad news is I'm done with fish. I, uh, I stopped eating fish entirely. Uh, it broke my fiance's heart. She loves sushi as well. She loves poke. I, uh, I, it's something I have to do for myself. I, there's a couple things in life that I just, uh, changes I felt like I needed to make and, uh, like morally for me, like one thing is I, I support communist China as little as I possibly can. I absolutely hate what goes on in China. You look, read some stories about, 
uh, the the Uyghur death camps, uh, work camps, excuse me, concentration camps, or like in China. Do you know this is a real thing? Uh, I got a flight. I was walking around Honolulu actually, like three weeks ago. Got handed a flyer, all about the live organ stealing that happens in China, where they kidnap people, cut them open, take out organs, and sell them on the black market. That happens in China. China's awful. So I hate China. Another thing, I'm, another principle I have that I just, I'm calling it done, uh, is I'm done eating fish because of, well, overfishing is a big problem. Uh, I don't feel like, I have no desire to contribute to overfishing at all. And then also because of plastic. You ever, you ever like watched A Plastic Ocean, the documentary on Netflix? You you cut open a fish and there's just plastic and particles all, like, I don't want to eat plastic. I really don't. I don't want cancer when I'm old. Uh, if... If I just need to eat vegetables, I can do that. Uh, it's not worth getting cancer for me and inhaling a bunch of plastic just to have sushi, which is good, but I, I can go without it. So uh, unfortunately, I'm done with fish because of plastic and because of overfishing. I don't want plastic in my food, and I don't want to contribute to overfishing of the oceans. And I, I think a place like Hawaii, my favorite place in the world, that's maybe 80 years left of human habitation. I'm not kidding. Uh, if, if the... Global temperature keeps going up. I mean, if the global temperature goes up nine degrees Fahrenheit, like most of America becomes a desert. People don't realize that. So I, I'm i kind of a nut. I guess I'm kind of a hippie. Uh, people think I'm like super liberal or super right wing. I'm really neither. I don't really – I hate both sides. I just do my own thing. Um, but <laughs> I don't eat fish anymore. That's my my crazy rant for, from Zach. Welcome to the, welcome to the cool zone. Uh, Davis writes in. He says, does Reggie Bush deserve – to have his Heisman Trophy reinstated after the new NCAA rules with the NIL. I think personally, yes, uh, he was no doubt the best college player that year. So, yeah, Reggie Bush deserves to get the Heisman Trophy back. In fact, okay, so let's say the Heisman Trophy doesn't acknowledge it. I do. He won the Heisman Trophy fair and square. He got paid some money. Hey, does, hey let me ask you a question. No, no matter how much money you get paid— does that make you faster? Does that make you catch the ball? I think his mom got paid like $100,000 to buy a house or some shit. Like, <laughs> I've been cussing a lot, man. I'm really getting getting loose-lipped. Um, no, it, getting paid didn't make Reggie Bush a better football player. He worked his tail off. He earned that trophy. He was, the best, he was the best player in college football. Didn't make him faster. Didn't make him catch the ball more. And the fact that he's being punished for something that's no longer illegal... I mean, here's a crude example. It's it's like in Washington, weed is legal here. It's like having a guy who's serving life in prison for a a charge with marijuana, even though it's legal now. It's like, ah, wait, it's it's legal now. It wasn't when he committed the crime, but why is he in jail for something that's now legal? It makes no sense. Why is Reggie Bush being punished for something that's now allowed in college football? It's ridiculous. Come on, man. Free Reggie. Let him have the, like, look, he won the Heisman Trophy. You know what? I know. We all know it. Let's just acknowledge it. Give him the stupid trophy and let him enjoy his life. He deserves it. He earned it. Okay, Jack writes in. Jack says, is it weird that I don't really care about who wins Formula One races? I just really love good storylines and just good racing in general. For example, I really like the most recent race because we got to see Ricardo battling with the two Ferraris and Sergio Perez Lando battling with both Mercedes and George Russell battling with Fernando Alonso. I know that Max ran away with the race win, but I since every other aspect of the race was great, I still enjoyed the race as a whole. 
Dude, that's not weird. That makes total sense. Um, look, Max versus Mercedes is fun for me, so I care who wins because I want to see Max beat Mercedes. That's exciting to me. But if it's not close, why would you... They don't even show Max when he's way ahead, so... Um, and, like, Lewis Hamilton has dominated Formula 1 for years. Mercedes has won seven championships in a row. And they've been blowouts. So when you have a, a, a team or a racer dominating a sport, like Formula 1, then as fans, we are forced to look for other interesting battles throughout the grid. And there are plenty of good, interesting battles. So, like, thank God for McLaren versus... Ferrari. The battle for third is so, so, so close and so entertaining. Back and forth. So, yeah, no, Jack, that's not weird at all. It makes total sense. And uh, I don't care what position you're fighting for. Wheel-to-wheel racing, whether it's for 19th or 2nd or 1st, wheel-to-wheel racing is really fun and really interesting and exciting to watch. So, uh, yeah, racing is racing, and I want to watch good racing. Final question of the day. Caleb writes in, he says, Hey, Zach, when you played football... What time did you like to practice plays and drills? Was there a time that you absolutely hated and glad you never have to do that ever again? Uh, a time. So I, I always tried to... Well, I got a couple stories here. Number one, uh, I live in the Pacific Northwest. Grew up there my whole life. And so when it rained, literally, the minute I saw rain happening outside, I'd grab a football. I'd grab my little brother Zane and say, hey, we're going outside to play catch because I want to play quarterback in college. And we live in the Northwest, and I want to play quarterback at the varsity level even. And to do that, you're going to have to play football in the rain, practice, games, whatever. So I wanted to master, be really great at throwing the ball in the rain. And I was always really good in the rain. I, because of that, uh, it would start raining, and I would get better because everyone else is slipping and not comfortable. And I'm like just dropping dimes on people who are defensive backs, a little bit slower, and I just, for some reason, it just, when I was most comfortable, someone was raining because I, I worked really hard at that, making that my edge. Uh, I knew that was something you had to be good at in, in Washington here in the Northwest. Um, now, my favorite time to do drills late at night, early in the morning, any anytime you're under the lights, it's so cool and so special. Like football, under the lights, practice, drills, a game, whatever. It, it's just better. It's so fun. And it's cooler, by the way. Uh, my, I hate my least favorite time to do drills is in the heat of the day, 3, 4 p.m., uh, running conditioning in the pounding sun. That's not fun. I don't miss that. I, I, I never will miss that. I I hated conditioning. I, I'm like, I'm a quarterback, dude. Honestly, like in college, I hated it. Uh, the starting quarterback of our school because our, our coach was a dippy. Like he played favorites like crazy. He made everyone condition except for the starting quarterback. And I'm like, dude, you're all you're doing. I'm old. I'm, I'm playing. I'm 24 years old playing college football. Uh, and <laughs> conditioning didn't make me a better quarterback. In fact, all it did was make me wear out my legs. And once you lose your legs in training camp, it's over. You lose your legs to throw the football. And you're trying to ice every day and stretch and take care of your legs. But as a quarterback, one of the most valuable assets you have is taking care of your legs so that they're ready to go. And I, man, they, they allowed our starting quarterback to not condition but forced everyone else to do it. And it was like so weird and divisionary. And I, I would have, I wish I would have gotten that, that preferential treatment. I didn't, I was bitter about it forever. Still am. But, uh, I remember the day, like when my legs suddenly felt like jello and you can't get it back unless you take time off. And the problem is you're in the middle of football season. You can't take time off. So, 
I hated conditioning. I hated doing it in the heat of the day. Conditioning at night, it was fine. The, the heat, like it's hard on your legs still, but at least the heat's not there. I, I love practicing early morning under the lights, something about it. Even like as the sun is rising and it's still not hot, totally fine with me. I love it. So, uh, and then also like four o'clock, five o'clock as the sun is sitting and the sun is like right in your eyes and you can't see anything. Hate that too. That's not fun either. So, uh, that's the worst time to play football. All right, guys. Uh, I want to shift gears to an interview I did the other day uh, with my good friend Marcel. I uh, I just I gave him a great intro, so I guess now please enjoy my interview with Marcel. Joining me now, he played college football in the SEC at Missouri. He was an All SEC defensive end. He played for the Browns and the Seattle Seahawks. He loves football. He loves helping young men. He's now coaching defensive line for the Barcelona Dragons. Marcel Frazier, how are you? I'm doing great, dude. How are you doing today? I'm doing awesome, man. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. I've really, I've actually been teasing this for a while. Um, and I guess what I'd like to do first is just have you, you're coaching right now in the European League of Football. Uh, pitch me and everyone else on the league. Tell me about the league. Tell me uh, why I should be excited and kind of tell people about what's going on over there. So yeah, man, we've um, we've rebranded basically from NFL Europe. We've took the name and rights of every single team. Well, not every team because we're not as big as NFL Europe was, but all eight of our teams I know, at least the Barcelona Dragons, the Hamburg Sea Devils, the team up in Frankfurt, we all took the name and rights from NFL Europe. Um, but the key difference now is we're trying to create a actual European league of football that grows and develops European talent, whereas the old NFL Europe was almost like an American developmental league that happened to be in Europe. So that's a that's a big difference here. Um, we're trying to grow the fan base here and just grow the talent to give it longevity and maybe give kids some opportunities for NFL pathways, Canadian um, international pathways. So yeah, that's the that's the one key difference. But the fans, you know, I think they're more excited than ever just because NFL Europe has been over for a decade or two now. So they've been really hungry for you know, a, a, a multi-country league here in, um, in Europe, and we're off to a great start, I believe. I'm pretty unique on YouTube where I can reach anybody globally. So a lot of my audience is in Germany and in Spain and all over the UK. And I know that, you know, I, I, I cover Formula One, which means I tapped into Europe as well. And it's interesting, there, there really is a hunger for football in Europe. Is that your sense as you're coaching over there? Oh, man, totally. Um, you know, I've only been to two venues so far. We've had two home games, and we played at Cologne. And, you know, both venues that I've been at so far, fans are singing the whole time. Fans are chanting. It's almost kind of like the soccer kind of fan base where they're just active the whole time. They don't always quite know when to cheer as far as on offense or defense, <laughs> but they just kind of sing songs and they chant pretty much nonstop which is awesome. They get really, really, really drunk before the game. Uh, they pregame just like they pregame, you know, just like Americans. They do their whole tailgate thing. They eat. I know here in Barcelona we have a band who actually does pregame for about one to two hours. Um, so it's a live show in our parking lot that they just the band sings and plays music, some classic American music, some Spanish music. They get the fans all rowdy, and then you know when the when the game starts, it's ready to go, man. So the fans seem hungry for it, and they've supported it, I think, in television ratings and as far as showing up in person as well. Yeah, I've been impressed. I follow you guys. I follow the Barcelona Dragons on Instagram, your team. I think you signed a kicker, actually, like 15 minutes ago I saw. Is that – do you know anything about that? 
I do not know about that, but looks like he's played on the Raiders, which is which is great for us. That's phenomenal. Um, are you having fun? Oh, dude, it's awesome. It's um, it's a little bit different flavor as far as just a slight language barrier. Um, you know, we're in Spain, and Spain is one of the countries where they don't speak as much English compared to you know Germany or obviously the UK. Their language is in- is English, but in Germany, I know they speak a little bit more English, so. It's given me a chance to touch up on my Spanish, but you find new ways to coach. It's um, it's almost like high school in JUCO where you're really getting people who are young in the game, and you have to find new ways to communicate to them to get your point across. You know, but I'm having an amazing time in Spain, dude. Like, how can you not like Spain? Yeah, tropical, beautiful, warm. Well, you were in Andorra yesterday, right? Is that accurate? Yeah, I was in Andorra the past two nights. Um, but yeah, Andorra is awesome, dude. It's up in the mountains it's a village it's a couple little villages it's ultra modern i mean per capita probably the most modern place i've ever set foot in everything was just ultra modern everything was made of stone um yeah it was just awesome dude everybody was super fit they're into outdoors mountain biking hiking skiing kind of like the pnw a little bit Mm, yeah see you're on your bye week you just travel over to andorra for a couple days yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty sweet deal. It's only about a three hour and fifteen minute drive, um, <laughs> and you you're in a completely different country. They're not in the European Union at all, so it's a little bit different flavor. There really was no COVID restrictions as far as getting in. You know, coming out of it, they they checked our passport and all that good stuff. But going in, it was like a checkpoint, and they waved at us, and we kind of just went in. Wow, what's it like? So, how far was the travel to Cologne, Germany? So Cologne was just like, you know, taking a a flight on the West Coast, maybe from Southern Cal to Washington. It wasn't, I slept most of the way, but I don't think it was any more than two and a half, maybe two hours and 45 minutes. Um, Cologne was awesome though. Cologne was a little bit more of a historic place. It reminds me a lot of America as far as the infrastructure in Germany. Very, very big freeways. They drive super fast. The cars are a little bit larger in Germany compared to Spain. Um, The people are much, much bigger in Germany compared to Spain, they look they look more American, you know, tall, wide. Um, but it was it was awesome. You know, the the one thing about Europe is everyone is kind. There's no like you're never really like looking over your shoulder like you are in the States as far as, oh man, this this guy might be crazy or this person might have a weapon and kill me. Everybody's just super kind, so you let your guard down a lot here, which is awesome. How is the experience for the players? You're coaching, but you're coaching a bunch of players. What's it like for them? Are they having a good time? Is it good for them? Oh, man, they have – the Spanish guys are having an amazing time because in comparison to the German league, obviously, Germany is probably the most developed football in the continent of Europe, whereas Spain, a lot of our guys are young on the international scene. They're not young in age, all of them are. Some of them are, but a lot of them are just young on the international scene, and they have just soaked it up. And um, I know going to Germany for them was, I think, the first time most of them have left their home country or their home region – for a um for a game and many of them had never been to Germany at all so i know they enjoyed it absolutely and we've we've taken great care of them just from my experience in the XFL the CFL and the NFL we take care of our guys obviously it's not going to be the same finances but amenities the housing our guys live pretty close to the beach they eat pretty well on game day and the day before game day and while traveling so they're loving it man I'm curious, in Division One football, you have guys who are like walk-ons who often have to work jobs on the side. Is anybody doing that over there? We do have guys who work, actually. We have guys who work and commute. So 
We have, you know, the majority of our guys live in a residence um, in town. So we, the, a lot of the coaches, we were at the beach town. Then they moved us over to where the stadium's at. So we were all in the same residence, though. So it was great accommodations. But I have two D linemen who commute. One commutes about an hour and a half every day for practice. One commutes about two hours. And then I have my four or five other D linemen. They live here in the residence. So they just, you know, drive only, you know, five, ten minutes to practice and to home. But there's some guys, yeah, who work. We have a starting money who's a um, like outside linebacker safety hybrid. He works a night shift at a factory, and so he practices and does meetings all day. Then he drives home, goes to night shift, wakes up. I mean, not wakes up, but um, gets off work, go to sleep for a little bit, eat, and then come to practice. And he does it all over again every week. That's a dude who loves football. There's there's no way you're doing that kind of work if you don't enjoy the work. Oh, absolutely. And speaking on love of football. That's not a theme you really have to worry about in Europe because it's 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 not amateur because we're paying them and we're paying for their accommodations and we pay for their flights, but they're not doing it to get rich like in America. So they absolutely yeah. love the game. No matter if they're young in the game, old in the game, they know a lot, they don't know anything, they're good or bad. Across the board, I would say the majority of the guys love the game unlike anywhere I've ever been probably as far as coaching. When Europe too... Football is not your first option. I mean, there's so many other sports you could gravitate towards before playing American football. So if a guy chose to play football in Spain, that dude's there for football. I mean, that's that's really cool to me. That's part of the story. I go, wow, man, these guys are so dedicated. I, I do want to know, so you, you talked briefly about coaching guys with a language barrier. So do you have guys who don't speak English or speak very little English? You're trying to teach how to play defensive line? Yeah, I have, like, I have two guys who... Um... You know, they speak maybe kindergarten English, if that. And my Spanish is like first grade Spanish. So um, I'm blessed enough to have an assistant coach who basically works part time. He's a head coach for a local team in town, but he mm -hmm. comes and helps us when he can. And obviously he speaks fluent Spanish, Catalan and English. Um, so he helps a lot when he's there. But He's our only guy on the defensive staff who's fluent in Spanish. The rest, um, when he's not there, we have to wing it. And he's not always with the DBs or the linebackers. He's rarely with them, so he's with me. But, yeah, I would say I got a lot of guys who know three to four languages and English probably being their worst for mo all of my D linemen probably. Mm -hmm. I have one guy from the U.K., and so English is his second language. He's actually born in Italy. English is his second language, but he's lived in the U.K. for 14 years, so – he speaks well enough that me and him obviously communicate the best, but the rest of the guys, they range anywhere from kindergarten English to maybe conversational English, you know, to college English. Does this make you a better coach having to basically speak football rather than speak English, if that makes sense? You're, you're, you're teaching and showing in a different way. Is, that, is it pushing you and challenging you as a coach? It makes me a more creative coach for sure. I don't know if it always makes me better because I think – you want to speak in black and white terms as much as possible as a coach. Um, mm. But it, it makes you find a way. Just like when I was coaching high school at David Ellis and the kids have never seen half the drills I was introducing to them. So I had to be very punctual and be very visual on how I explained it. The great thing is um, visualization and, and kind of walking through a drill or watch, watching film, that has carry over regardless, no matter if they're speaking Japanese, German, or, or, or English or Spanish. When they see me do something and they see me walk through something, um, 
it's good. But yeah, it makes me it, it makes me way more creative of a coach. Where I guess in the long run, it'll probably make me a better coach because I'll learn how to communicate with people literally from different countries, which is can only be a benefit for me. So here's something you may not know the answer to. You grow up in Spain. How are you? Is how do you play football? I mean, are, is it through the high school? Is it through a club? Like, how does one learn football in a country where it's not the predominant sport? So this generation of guys, the guys that are around our age or younger or a little bit older, they grew up with the Barcelona Dragons of the NFL Europe. So they had major television exposure, I believe. That's my guess. Um, Hmm. The generation before them, though, I have no idea how they would even consume American football. But I know they, you know, they show the Super Bowl in in, um, Germany. Germany has has an American football, uh, basically almost exclusive channel that shows the Monday night game, the Thursday night game, I think the Sunday night game as well. They show a couple games per week in primetime in Germany. Spain, you know, um, obviously it's huge, huge, huge soccer. It's one of the soccer meccas of the world. But the guys, it's almost it's almost like the guys who play basketball or football for intramural college that just kind of rounded, they kind of rounded up the guys and maybe there was a head coach who saw that somebody was big or saw that somebody was fast and recruited them. But a lot of them, you know, I, me and my one uh, coworker, we came here talking a lot of soccer. And a lot of the kids told us, quite frankly, that they hate soccer and American <laughs> football is their favorite sport. So I stopped talking soccer quick around most of the guys because they just a lot of them really love the game of football. That's super cool. That's awesome, man. Uh, I guess, uh, is there anything else you, you should tell me? I mean, I, I'm curious if there's anything I, I'm forgetting to ask about because I, if you have more insight, I'm happy to hear stuff. Any any stories, anything I'm, I should be asking about? Um, we, The league is looking to expand. That's that's a big goal of the league. Um, I want I want to say they want to double maybe in the next coming years, and that may mean teams in, you know, England or the Netherlands or France or Italy. Um, but those those are not confirmed. But I think that would be huge for the league. Um, expansion for the league would be huge. As we all know, there's a major, major void in American football right now. The XFL is down. The USFL won't be back till the spring. The Canadian Football League is, I mean, it's a Canadian league. It's not quite a United States-based league. So there's still the flaws that come with that system. Um, so I think expansion would be huge for this league. And I just think, honestly, it's a, it's a good deal. Um since it's like a European bred league, it's not just a bunch of Americans who are using this as second fiddle. It's a lot of Europeans that they're bringing up in the game that are 18, 19, you know, college days kids that are growing in the game. And I think that's what may make this league last long. Do you, who's your best player? Do you have a best player or two that you're like, but this guy's a stud. You know, there's a lot They're They're learning, man. Different guys pop every game. We're young in the season. We have a lot of great young Spanish guys. Um, we have really explosive receivers and a really explosive quarterback. Um, Gene Constant, our, our American receiver, he separated himself for sure out, out of everybody, but he kind of walked in ready to play. Some of the other guys are learning a bit, and I'm sure by the end of the season there will be different guys who stand out. I want to know if you're a guy growing up right now, say you're, you're 17, 18, 19 in Spain, why should they come play for you guys? We're the top level in, in Spain. We're the top level, you know. We we compete with the six best teams in Germany, and the you know six time in a row Polish champ in Poland. So, 
we're by far, you know, the highest level of football that you can play south of Germany. And that's including France, that's including Portugal, that's including Spain, um, that's including Italy. We're the highest football that you can play by far. And um, we're up there with the Central European big boys, man. And if you have any aspirations of playing football or you care about it or you want to get paid to play this game, this is the top level. So it's just a no-brainer if you if you like football and, and this is what you kind of want to do. Yeah, man, your stadium looks beautiful too. I, I watched your first game and there's a shot of the – they do like a, a pan out of the whole scene. I'm like, man, the, you got the green mountains in the background. The sun was setting. I was like, man, that's a beautiful stadium. Is that is that how it really is? Oh, it's awesome, dude. It reminds me of something in SoCal. or um, It reminds me a lot of SoCal. This region is a lot like SoCal. The water is a bit warmer, and the, the temperature is a bit more stable. But, yeah, there's the mountains, um, which are in the near distance in the background. And then you're about, you know, our stadium is about a – 15-minute drive from the Mediterranean Sea. So it's it's just a great setup. It's very, very nice. You get in the water, you swimming? Uh, early I did. You know, when we weren't in season, we were kind of in training camp. But, man, you'd be shocked. I don't get a lot of time, man. It's, uh, it's pretty much hustle and bustle, go, go, go. And being the youngest guy on the defensive staff and the second youngest guy on the whole staff, I kind of, you know, I'm trying to hold my own a bit. So not too much free time or fun time, but when my older staff people want to have some fun, you know, I grab on their, to their coattails and, and we have some fun for sure. Man, to me, the good life is getting in the water every day. That's, I mean, you know where I'm going. I, I oh man, I love it. The beach life is awesome. This is second to none. I, I want to ask you, you played college football in the SEC, uh, big time division one college football. Uh, I played in the NFL a little bit. Recently, the NCAA basically was forced to allow you know, college athletes to make money off of their name, image, and likeness. I'm curious, when you saw that, what was your reaction as a former college athlete? I was happy for those guys, man. That's that's awesome. I'm, I'm watching my, um, I'm watching a lot of my former teammates, you know, take advantage of it. And uh, uh, something that people don't realize is walk-ons can do this as well. So maybe now a walk-on doesn't have to work at the car dealership or work at a fast food or work a shitty night shift. He can get money off his name and likeness by promoting, you know, a pizza joint or promoting a bar or promoting a wing joint. And maybe he can make some viable money where he doesn't have to work these crazy hours. Or you can do like what D.R. King down in Miami has done. They're hosting kind of signing events or major events for the whole team where they split the profit. So if you're a walk on, man, Mm. you can go to that event, split some profit and you can have some cash to take home. Where maybe you can get better at your craft of playing football instead of worrying about making money all the time. Um, so that's awesome. That's kind of like the, for me, that's like the, the unsung hero or the, or the or the unsung winner in all of this is the walk-on kid who can monetize themselves and doesn't have to go work a labor job or doesn't have to do another job for, you know, five hours out of their day anymore. It's insane, the guys who walk on. They, they have a job. They also have full-time school. And football is more than enough for a full-time job. It's pretty crazy uh, the, the time commitment those guys have. It's, I, I am happy for them as well. Uh, you know what? The other people I'm happy for are the guys who have a lot of potential and might get hurt. Uh, you see often there's a guy every year who is headed to the NFL. You feel so good about him. And in his last game, he hurts his knee. Or his final season, something happens. And his draft stock falls a bunch. 
and maybe they never play again or maybe they you know they lose out on a ton of money in the NFL draft it's those guys who I'm like yes okay these guys it's so awful to have a guy look like they're set for life tear an ACL and and have a major problem and lose a ton of money and so now those guys can make money too I just I I I for a long time have hated the NCAA it drives me nuts I still think they're underpaid these guys uh, but I'm happy to see guys uh, make some money and uh, get what I think is well deserved. At least minimum, make money after name, image, and likeness. Um, I'm curious. Not everybody knows your story. Uh, certainly, people you're new to some people here on this show right now. What I love about you, you got your master's degree through your football scholarship. Can you tell that story and uh, talk about that at all? Yeah. So um, basically, you know, my summer. So I'm going to my senior year. I still had a year of eligibility left. I'm a year of scholarship money left, and now I've only had a half a semester of football or a semester of football left. And so I kind of just talked to my advisor and was like, "What can I do continuing education-wise, besides taking like a golf class or like a ceramics class?" Um, and we just looked into a program, a master's education, and it was basically hybrid. Um, you can do it all online, or you can do it in person and online. But for me, I was like, hey, I'm going to try to pursue the NFL, so why not do the all-online version of it? You know, I did it. Um, had a great advisor at Mizzou. And kind of, you know, playing SEC ball is pretty humbling because even being, like, all SEC, there's still a separation. Like, you play against Dak Prescott and you play against some of these top guys. And even in the top conference, there's still separation, just like in the NFL. There's fringe NFL guys and then there's Tom Brady. So it was just humbling. And for me, I didn't see it as like, hey, I'm giving up on my dream. I just, I seen it as like a, kind of like a safety net or just like a cushion to brace my fall if I ever fell. Um, I took a semester off to pursue my NFL dreams because that was going to be impossible to try to make a roster. You know, I was I was doing training camp early, um, rookie training camp while doing my master's. But I took a semester off. And then I restarted it and was doing it through the XFL, which was still hard, working a bunch of jobs trying to, um, you know, make a pro roster. And, um, yeah, man, but it was, a, it was a great decision, absolutely. To me, it seemed like you were looking at it as, hey, if they're going to use me, I might as well use them kind of thing. You're like, I'm going to get everything I can out of this opportunity rather than taking underwater basket weaving. Is that accurate? Totally, and that's that comes from more the JUCO mindset of, when you're at junior junior college, you're you're pretty much roughing it. You are, you know, mills are scarce, transportation is scarce, financial aid is scarce. People don't realize about JUCO is if you go to a California JUCO, you're you're funding it yourself. There is no scholarship, so you're funding it fully out of pocket. You've seen Last Chance U with the California schools; it's a whole different ballgame. So for me going there, um, a lot of my class that I went to Mizzou with, I think I was the it was only two of us who had came from JUCO and finished. I think it was three originally, but two of us came and finished. And ironically, both of us kind of leeway straight into our career after football was done because we had that real-life experience as JUCO as far as, hey, man, you got to work for what you want. And so I just knew, like, hey, football is not always promised, and you, you got to kind of make something for yourself career-wise and um, and do something. And, and the master's degree was a way to do that, man. And it was, and it was a way to use SEC football the way that they use thousands and thousands of athletes that they've done for decades and decades. And it's not like, oh, this in your face. It was just, it's a resource I had, just like I was a resource to the University of Missouri. Marcel, I want to say thank you so much for your time. I know you're busy. you got a lot going on. 
I think we're on a nine-hour time difference right now. It's when I got off a call with Japan, which is 16 hours, and I was trying to manage everything. I want to say real quick before you go, I remember you graduated. You wore number nine. I got your jersey, the one you wore literally as my jersey after you left, and it was shredded. This dude played so hard. I, your jersey was like had holes in it. It was ripped everywhere. I couldn't believe they kept it and gave it to me. Uh, and I just have always, ever since then, man, I, I, it's great to call you a friend. I appreciate your time, and uh, I'm rooting for you and everything, man. Thank you so much. I appreciate you, Zach, and good luck on your move to Hawaii, man, and enjoy the sun, dude. <laughs> the sun, the water. Dude, you know I cannot wait. Uh, I got no space, but I don't need any. The ocean is pretty big out there, so I'll be, I'll be plenty happy. It is, it is. Watch out for sharks, man. I will. I will. <laughs> love you, brother. Talk soon. I right, love you, brother. Talk soon. All right, guys, that's all I have. Thank you so very much for tuning in. I love you. I appreciate you. I hope you have a great day. Uh, I will see you soon. Working on film analysis stuff. Not sure when I'm recording next. Uh, could be a while. So just letting you know. Huge episode today. It's very long. I know that. Uh, but the next one might not be for a while. So love you. Appreciate you. Have a great day. But um, bam, we are done.